the wait is over. The Shy returns with new episodes on Paramount Plus. What brings you to the Shy? Opportunity. Everybody get down! Walk right up to the side. A new rain is coming to the South Side. Never should have sent a boy to do a woman's job. The Shy. New episodes now streaming. Visit ParamountPlus.com slash The Shy to get a 50% discount off the Paramount Plus with the Showtime annual plan. Offer ends July 14th. The subscription auto renews. Restrictions apply. Welcome back to Composite Two-Star Recruits, a USC recruiting podcast where a couple of one-star hosts talk about five, four, three-star prospects and everything in between. I am your one-star host, Chris Trevino. And as always, I am joined by my podcasting partner in crime, Gerard Martinez. Gerard, I already tweeted it out. This one might be a record breaker, and you're already telling me to calm down with that. How are you feeling about this episode? We got a lot to talk about. We have a lot to talk about, but usually when we have some organization and some specific topics to hit on, things go a little smoother. I think we start to ramble a little more when we're searching for things to talk about. So it could be a very concise podcast. I don't, I don't know, man. You and concise don't go together. That's like oil and water. We were organized last week, and it ended up being the longest podcast in this podcast short history, just over two and a half hours uh, of content. Um, I know like a very minuscule amount of people complain about the length, but like the overwhelming majority of people like do not give a shit that it goes that long. And this one might even be longer. So we appreciate the loyalty of these people that just want to hear you talk for two, two and a half hours, even three hours. We're going to hit three hours at some point. It's going to happen. It's inevitable. Sounds like a threat. Sounds like a threat. Before we get into all the things we need to talk about, also, people requested that I do timestamps for what we talk about, so I'm going to try to do that for this episode. I got my little notepad here. If you hear me scribbling, that's just me marking down the topic. But Gerard, very quickly, I was just doing a podcast with Ryan, and we had this joke about the scholarship uh, cap opening up, and we're going to talk about that. But if I was a hypothetical school, uh, Chris Trevino University, uh, we are called the Fighting Sycamore Crabs. That's our that's our uh, that's our that's our uh, mascot. And theoretically, I guess I could sign 85 scholarships. I can sign 85 players without penalty as long as I'm at that 85 mark. But Ryan asked me, who is my first, like, support staff hire? And I instantly said, oh, I'm going after Gerard. I'm taking Gerard. I'm going to try to get him on my staff as my, like, director player personnel. Gerard, do you accept this position? No. Okay, well. Trevino Tech, I'm sorry, <laughs> but I had a great conversation with the University of Southern California and I'm taking my talents to USC. Okay, well, do you hear this? Do you hear this? This is me ripping a blank check, and I'm sliding it across the metaphorical podcast table to you. Hey, man, those guys work hard. Like Those guys, <laughs> they slave uh, in those offices for hours upon hours with logistics and things and yeah, so I mean, I have an appreciation for being a recruiting support staff member. Uh, I am a, a recruiting analyst, and my talent is writing. Uh, so I understand uh, what I do well, and writing is not necessarily uh, a function or, or something that's needed 
uh, as a recruit staff member so much as it is um, just slaving on film and just doing a lot of logistics work. So, yeah, I think people kind of have the wrong impression of what support staff does. There's a lot of different kinds of support staff as well. I mean, there's the guys that recruit, and then there's the guys that have to organize. And so uh, most of the guys have to do a lot of organization, especially nowadays because support staff is kind of taken on as a whole the recruiting coordinator title that used to be a part of the assistant coaching staff. And that's really no longer the case. You don't really have a full-time assistant coach, a position coach that's the recruiting coordinator. It's usually a group of guys and the support staff and gals that put together everything and make it happen. So it's a lot of paperwork, man. There's a lot of stuff that goes into it. It's uh, not probably as fun as people think it is. Look, when we get back to talking about the scholarship limits and that change with the NCAA, I'm going to come back and I'm going to try to sell you on this uh, this highly sought-after position at Chris Trevino Tech, Chris Trevino University. So we'll get back to that. But that is not our cold open for today. Our cold open is going to be a little bit different. We're always switching things up. It's going to be more of a a charcuterie, charcuterie board in terms of we have a lot of different options on this board. There's a bunch – of news, some major, some minor, and I'm just going to run through this list. That's going to be our cold open, and Gerard, you're just going to be able to jump in wherever you want, not specifically with the commitments that came through. We're going to evaluate those guys individually a little bit later in the show, but a lot has happened over the last week or so since we last talked. So first off, USC has picked up three commitments, Washington sophomore quarterback Jacoby Covington, Juco offensive lineman Cooper Lovelace, a lot of fans saying, yes, finally, there is the beef. And then most recently, four-star defensive back Braxton Myers for the 2023 class. I know you have a lot to say about him. Long Beach Poly, four-star cornerback in the 2023 class. Dalen Austin went ahead and made his commitment to LSU out in SEC country. I know a lot of fans are a little bit confused about this one. You know, Lincoln Riley wants to shut down uh, teams from poaching. SEC, LSU, Brian Kelly, they come in and get a Long Beach Poly cornerback. We're going to talk about that. As we mentioned, with my bid at the top, the NCAA scholarship limits, they've eliminated the 25-man cap. You can now recruit over that. We're going to talk about that. And then Cade Eldridge, the three-star athlete, kind of tight end hybrid prospect, recently put USC in his top five along with Michigan, Oregon, UW and Washington State, he's going to take an official visit in June during that big June visit weekend. Speaking of that week, that weekend, uh, three-star Texas offensive lineman Terrence Green, or is it defensive tackle? I get those defensive confused. Tackle. Defensive yeah, tackle, five, Terrence six, Green. Five. He will be taking an official visit in June during that weekend as well. He took an unofficial visit uh, this spring, going to come back for that big weekend in June, so you can add him to the list. More beef. Uh, taking a visit. And then finally, Pittsburgh wide receiver, Pittsburgh. Yeah, Pittsburgh wide receiver transfer, Jordan Addison took his long anticipated, highly waited on official visit to USC this past weekend. It was confirmed. There was tweets. There was deleted tweets. A lot of smoke and conspiracy around that. Apparently he's down to two schools, USC and the Texas Longhorns, Alabama faded off. We'll see. This is the age of the transfer portal and NIL. Anything could happen, but reports coming out in the last 24 hours that it is down to the Trojans and the Texans. So we're going to talk about that probably at the tail end of this cold open. But, Gerard, 
I threw a lot at you. I put a lot on this this board. Which one are you picking at first? What do you what do you what do you get a taste first? Well, in terms of news, we also had to add that Sarah cornerback Roderick Pleasant ran a ten one six and a twenty forty in the two hundred meters at the Division Four meet. That was pretty big news. Uh, so I'll interject that. But I think yeah, we have I mean, to you talked to him, so you got to you gotta you gotta stand up for what those quotes you got that story you wrote. <laughs> well, it wasn't anything groundbreaking. We talked a little bit about the potential football track team that USC could have in the 2023 class. It's beautiful. With beautiful. Uh, adding in uh, maybe Damani Jackson in there from the 22 class who won the state 100 meters last year. So uh, that would be kind of an incredible group to be able to put on the football field, all guys that are legitimate track guys. Uh, that article went up, um, I think, over the weekend, maybe the end of last week. Uh, but I think we got to talk about the commits first. Just for brevity's sake, we got to get into that and talk a little bit about Braxton Myers. Yeah, I mean, the Texas guy, he was here for USC's spring game. Uh, so he's been on campus before. He's going to take his official visit uh, in June. And, you know, he has scheduled that official visit to USC before he sort of had set that commitment date. So a lot of people were like, well, they kind of look it around like, well, that seems like a good sign. And there you have it. USC added its second defensive back in the 2023 class that started off so heavily on the offensive side of the ball. You know, Braxton Myers, consensus four-star recruit, comes from a really good bloodline. His dad played in the NFL. Um, he's a guy who maybe you like as maybe a cornerback rated as a safety right now. You wrote that great future impact piece as you do on all the commitments. Those are VIP. You can catch that on, you know, usefootball.com. Sign up for a dollar, get a whole month of coverage for a dollar. A dollar, Gerard. You have a dollar on you right now. I actually don't. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't keep cash on me, Chris. Um, but, uh, I, I mean, I think, you know, first off, we got a lot of questions about Braxton Myers as a defensive back. Is he a safety or is he a cornerback? And uh, in addition to the future impact piece, I talked to Braxton Myers just about the evolution of offenses and how defenses have had to adapt to that evolution of the RPO. And you have defensive backs, even cornerbacks nowadays, that have to be more physical. They have to be bigger. Everybody assumes you want to get bigger at cornerback because you're seeing bigger receivers. We've seen bigger receivers the past 20, 30 years in football. That's not really a new development. What's a new development is the amount of offense you're seeing behind the line of scrimmage. And with the RPO, you're seeing so many screen passes, whether they be bubble screens or alley screens, a lot of mesh, a lot of things happening where these cornerbacks now have to fight through blocks at the line of scrimmage outside the hash marks to be able to make tackles in space. And so you got to have physical guys. you got to get guys that can shed blocks and make tackles in open space. And so I talked about that a little bit with Braxton and, you know, what he does at Capel, what he he is going to potentially do at USC, what they've recruited him to do. They're recruiting him as a boundary corner. So that's basically the short side of the field. He would play cornerback there. And that's a challenging position because, a, you've got less field to be able to negotiate, which means sometimes on those screens, you'll get an offensive lineman that kicks out on you. And if you're a cornerback, man, that just sucks. Because <laughs> yeah. the less space you have to maneuver, 
the the better chance that that offensive lineman is able to get up on top of you or a tight end, uh, some bigger body that you're going to have to shed to be able to make that tackle. And also, the short side of the field, teams tend to not put safety help over the top as much because the opposite side, the field side corner, has all that field that he's got to be able to lock down and you tend to want to put somebody over the top. Now, with USC, it's a little interesting because they do run five defensive backs almost as a base package. You're usually looking at a nickel back or nickel safety, and it has been a nickel safety with Todd Orlando's defense, and right now it looks like a nickel safety with Alex Grinch's defense. Um, it kind of depends on how you look at Latrell McCutcheon because he's kind of been that guy Max Williams was hurt, so we didn't really see him in the spring game. But he's a guy that's also really more of a cornerback that's been made into a nickel. So you have those two guys there that have both been uh, semi-productive. I mean, McCutcheon played corner for Oklahoma last year. So he was a just straight-up cornerback. And now he's moved into more of a safety position, whereas Max Williams was a straight-up cornerback, and he's move more into that nickel position. So you're looking at a little bit more of a cornerback. I think with Braxton Myers, everybody I talk to who's seen him in person thinks he's a safety. So I don't really have an opinion that's very strong either way. I think he can potentially play cornerback because of the reasons I've said. I think there's an evolution with the offense and having more physical cornerbacks. There's potential maybe he can play boundary corner. But and I also see, in terms of ball skills and top-end speed, maybe you want a player that's a little stronger in those areas playing cornerback, whereas Braxton Myers could be a guy that's a little more of a free safety type. So you don't necessarily have to have him uh, playing on an island. So it's going to be one of those things where I, we have not seen him much in person in pads. And I think when you're talking about the distinction these days between cornerback and free safety that's really what you want to see. You want to see his hips. You want to see him move with the pads on because, again, that's a different game nowadays. You see seven-on-seven, seven and you see these little routes and everything, and you're like, okay, you're seeing coverage. But so much of the game nowadays on the edge is not just about coverage for the cornerback position. It is actually about run support. And so you're getting those – not even just the RPO from a pass standpoint, but also the read option that you get. And the quarterback is usually reading that defensive end when he's going to keep the ball. But a lot of defenses now are bringing a more aggressive look at cornerback to be able to use that as containment. So, you know, a few years ago, it was really all about the defensive end. But now with the RPO and everything that's gone on, you're seeing defenses start to adapt even further. And those cornerbacks are becoming containment. So there's a lot to kind of take in there, but I think that there's potential really of him playing either way. And it goes on, you know, with the article, we talk a little bit about the amount of those type of bodies, those profile of defensive backs, they're on USC's roster. I mean, you've got Braxton Myers coming in. There's a lot of people that think Damani Jackson should be playing safety in college. Fabian Ross, another 2022 commit that's a cornerback, Talk to Blair Angulo, who's seen a bunch of Fabian Ross, thinks is that he should be a guy that's playing near the line of scrimmage, being more of a nickel safety type. And then we already talked about Latrell McCutcheon. So there's a few guys in there that you see that sort of have that same body type. Jacoby Covington, even out of high school, out of Seguro, was rated as a safety, even though he played predominantly cornerback 
at Washington and was competing for a starting job at Washington as a cornerback. So you're talking about those six foot, six foot one guys, you know, 195, 200 pounds that you can move all over the place. So it's going to just be interesting to see who moves where, how they shift different players, different positions. And some of it may also be about who's available because you have injuries. And when you have a bunch of guys that can do a bunch of different things, it does give you some flexibility in the secondary. Braxton Myers, six foot one, 185 pounds, ranked 108 nationally in the 24 seven sports composite, the number six safety, number 20 prospect out of Texas, number 125 overall in our rankings and 24 seven sports rankings, the number eight uh, safety prospect. And yeah, kind of what you're saying in terms of all these things, everyone sort of being able to move around in different spots and play here, play there, play X or play Y or play Z. It kind of takes me back to this quote that Alex Grinch had over the spring and how they want the five best defensive backs on the field, regardless if they're a cornerback or they're a safety or they're strong safety. If they're all, if they're all five safeties, then they're all five safeties. If they're somehow, you know, three of them are cornerbacks and three of them are quarterbacks and two are safeties. It's just about everyone can play anywhere at any time. We've heard Malachi Crawford talk about this and their recruitment of him, that how they want him to play out as a boundary corner, then maybe slide into nickel, then maybe drop back to a free safety, whatever. It's this this sort of positionless defense, as you mentioned. And I th- feel like those are kind of the two biggest things, overall themes that this defense, these defensive coaches and Alex Grinch are looking for is speed. They seem to be offering a lot of guys with track backgrounds and then just the versatility. And that just goes with sort of any position, linebacker, defensive linemen, just guys that can move around like chess pieces, sort of, you know, as I mentioned, a position is defense where you can swip, swap guys out, move into the left side, right side. Everyone can play anywhere kind of deal. I don't know if that's really true. I, I think that's kind of a talking point. But when you get down to the nitty gritty of it, I really don't think you want somebody who you're recruiting as a potential safety playing field corner. I think you got to have a guy that's got speed playing field side just because you have so much space potentially that you have to cover. And there are niches here. I, I think it's sort of a broad thing to say, and it sounds good uh, superficially, but inevitably you want uh, your your safeties to be bigger and to be stronger and to be able to take potential tight ends coming out of the backfield or bigger receivers that are in the slot. You want your field corner to be your ultimate cover guy in terms of hips, in terms of speed, in terms of balance, agility, and ball skills. I think boundary corner is evolving a little bit and adapting to these offenses and that maybe you can shift a guy over that's a little more physical and doesn't have the top end speed. Maybe he did 20 years ago. But I think, yeah, that's a little bit of a generalization of we can just play anybody anywhere, all five guys. I think there's definitely going to be strengths and weaknesses with some players, and you have to identify those things. And getting the five best guys, I think, really hinges on the nickel position. I think that's really more a comment on is that nickel position, and we talked about this a couple times in previous podcasts, it can be a nickel backer, it can be a nickel safety, it can be a nickel corner. And Right now, USC has two guys there that are competing for a starting job that were previously cornerbacks. So you have Latrell McCutcheon and you had Max Williams. So we'll see if that continues. You also have a guy like Eric Gentry uh, that 
potentially could be in that spot and you have three linebackers on the field instead of five defensive backs, you can throw some wrinkles in there. And that's really become the spot in defenses in modern day defenses that changes, I think, depending on your opponent. I think that's really the team you're playing. That's where you want to make a change and have a little bit of a pivot in terms of personnel wise. And it was interesting because we go back to when the coaching staff was announced and Roy Manning was announced as being the nickelback outside linebacker and defensive end coach. And we sort of laughed. And and even when I talked to him and asked him questions about that, when we got a chance to sit down and ask questions of the new staff and he kind of laughed, he's like, well, you know, I have coached all of those positions. I've been a corners coach. I've been an outside linebackers coach. He played linebacker in college. And so he's had a lot of familiarity with all those things as a coaches, but really what ends up being is more than just a specific position. It's the overhangs. Nowadays, when you're talking about defenses, that's considered just an overhang position because it's that guy that's going to be in the slot. And just depending on who you play against, he's going to have different strengths and weaknesses. If it's a run team that's going to try to run on the edge a lot, you probably want to put a linebacker in there. And we've seen even with the tight front defenses, uh, Dave Aranda, he's used different type of guys just depending on the opponent and, and depending on his own personnel as well. You've seen guys that are like 6'2", 230 playing in that position, or you've seen guys that have been more like nickelbacks because he's playing against pass offenses and you're getting a smaller slot that you're going to have to cover first and foremost. So it's definitely an interesting position to look at. And if you really like the X's and O's of football and you like matchups, that's sort of the position that is the the stress point for defense nowadays. Going back to what you said about Manning in terms of coaching the Nichols, it's funny because he's been asked that, or he was asked that several times throughout spring camp. And I feel like I was there every time he was asked, but he kind of just laughs and he's like, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm labeled as a Nichols coach, but I really haven't gotten a lot of time to kind of work specifically with the Nichols. I just find that funny. You know, that's his title, but this whole, the whole camp, he was essentially just working with those edge rushers that, that rush end spots. So it doesn't seem like he's, he's going to be that involved moving forward. It seemed like it was more of an Alex Grinch deal, even though Manning has that title of Nichols coach. So. I'm interested to see if that changes in the uh, when the updated roster comes out, if they just ax that all together or they're going to keep him as a Nichols coach. I guess that's also a good segue into sort of, I know we mentioned him before, but Covington in terms of what he could bring to this, this defense. I, I'm, it's an interesting pickup for me because I thought maybe defensive back, they did need a little bit more help, but Covington isn't really that experienced and that's sort of what that cornerback specifically that cornerback position needed you know you have Makai Blackman very experienced probably going to be that starting cornerback on one side and then after that it's sort of like a dogfight for the other spot with not a ton of guys that have played Prophet Brown got that start last year Josh Jackson got a lot of he, uh, spot play in 2021 until the injury kind of forced him to the sideline Damati Jackson, obviously still coming off the injury. Sierra Wright, couple games, but nothing, no starts, nothing like that. Covington, 
has played the last two years, but I think it's like 16 games total, no starts, only five tackles last season, and a sack, which is nice, but mo- mostly special teams. So he's going to fit right in when it comes to a lack of experience. But like we said, about six foot one, 180 pounds, guy who's rated as a safety coming out. I think he's gonna. He's most likely going to be a cornerback. You know, you got Zion Branch coming. He's going to take up more spot, another spot in the uh, in that back that back end. You have Bryson Shaw coming. I think people a lot of, a lot of people are forgetting that they have Bryson Shaw coming, the former Ohio State starter. He's coming in. Maybe he could flirt around with that nickel spot like we talked about. Um, but Covington seems destined for the quarterback spot in, in my eyes. Um, but I think it's just an interesting pickup because. Like I said, they needed experience, and he's not really an experienced guy like that in terms of having starts, made a lot of plays, a lot of production. But he was high on Oklahoma's list. I mean, they were a finalist. I think they were the finalist for him. Uh, he chose them over Washington. So I guess they liked him enough. They were like, second time around, we got to grab him, got to bring him in. Yeah, he chose Washington over them. Um, I think the guy they – really seem to want to win the position that, you know, has gotten probably the most opportunities is Josh Jackson, considering mm-hmm. he came over from receiver and probably has the best ball skills because he was a guy that He's picking up passes less than left and right at last spring. Just yeah. Picking I mean, them up. He's the guy that legitimately was recruited as a receiver out of high school and he's got lots of length. He's not the biggest guy in terms of physicality. He's not a real physical corner, but he and Sierra Wright are probably the two most skilled players. Sierra Wright and Prophet Brown are the fastest, uh, if you're not counting Damani Jackson, obviously, coming off of injury, um, and the guys that have been there. So I, I, I feel like if they can get Josh Jackson healthy, and that's an if, because he has been banged up quite a bit, you know, over the past two years, he's missed some time. I think that's the guy that they want to interject there. Now, is he the same type of player as Covington? No. And that's what makes me wonder sort of where Covington ends up. Does he end up behind Blackman? Um, Blackman and Josh Jackson, to me, body type in terms of skill set are a little closer together than Covington and Josh Jackson are. So that's just going to be interesting to see how that all plays out. You know, do they – have somebody really kind of separate themselves at some point during fall camp? Does Prophet Brown really step up? Does Sierra Wright really step up? You'd like to see, you know, Josh Jackson or Sierra Wright really kind of step up. And then, you know, you bring in Covington and you've just got a very good, talented player uh, that, you know, was competing for a starting job this spring at Washington. And Washington, yeah, he didn't get a lot of experience. He didn't get any starts, but he was also playing in back of some really good players, guys like Elijah Molden and guys that had gone to the NFL. So it wasn't necessarily like he was behind a bunch of bums at Washington and didn't get playing time. He was behind some very good players uh, that have gone pro, and this was sort of his time to shine, which is why it surprised a lot of people that he left Washington because yeah. he was in line to potentially be a starter, and he had waited and, and been patient. And now he's decided to go and move on with a roster that's probably a bit more certainly deeper with talent than Washington has. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what side he ends up playing. And uh, to me, he's a bit more of a boundary guy because I think he's a bit bigger and a bit more physical and not necessarily 
quite as fast, but you know what? I haven't seen him play in a long time. So we have to kind of see what he looks like now as opposed to what he looked like as a girl. But that was one of the reasons why he was ranked as a safety, just because he had a little more size. He was a little more physical. He was a press man corner and not necessarily a guy that you want to be playing in space uh, that was super fast, super quick, super agile. And that tends to be what you want to see in that field side corner. Look, just to jump on your point earlier about Josh Jackson, I'm a big Josh Jackson junior guy. I mean, he's a guy I really liked coming out of high school as a wide receiver. Um, I was there, you know, that day he committed at the uh, spring practice out there with his family. That was cool. And, you know, he blew up in that spring when he, when he, when he flipped over. Like you said, the injuries have been a thing, but I actually penciled him in as my starter on the opposite of Blackman going to spring camp and then obviously banged up, rehab most of camp, came back slowly, didn't play in the spring game. I still had him as that starter uh, coming out post-spring camp. That's how, that's how highly I think of him, and that's how I didn't think anyone else really stepped up and grabbed it from him. And I feel like he's a big Dante guy. You know, Dante having recruited him over, flipped him over to cornerback, made a lot of progress progress with him. You know, I still think, you know, even with Covington coming in, even with Fabian Ross coming in, I still like I still like Josh Jackson to be the opposite guy starting with Blackman. That's just my thought. That's just my thought. And unless you want to add anything, we can move on to the next topic, which I know you you I feel like we we flubbed it a little bit because we're supposed to talk about Braxton Myers and then go into this. But Chidavion Bradley, which is a name we've talked about before, haven't talked about him in a while. The edge rusher out of St. Louis, right? Missouri? Yeah, St. Louis. Yeah, I get these guys all mixed up in their their home states. Uh, But we hadn't heard anything from him from a while. He got a USC crystal ball a long time ago, like in the early months after Lincoln and Roy Manning and them had come over. Uh, He was a big target at Oklahoma, got that USC crystal ball. Seemed like, hey, maybe this is a guy who's going to commit early. But then it went quiet, really quiet. And then Braxton Myers commits, and then he had an interesting quote tweet to Braxton Myers' commitment uh, edit and sort of, you know, alluding to, hey, should I join up? Should I join in? You know, a lot of times these we get these all the time. These aren't sort of like the gold standard of real interest. You know, it's just people tweeting, having fun with the fan bases, just jumping on the momentum of somebody else and just saying, hey, like, where are we going? Eye emojis. I'm guilty of it. But, you know, it was a, it was a it was something that just put Bradley back on the USC radar for USC fans and this podcast, obviously, as we're talking about it. Yeah, Bradley and Braxton Myers have a relationship uh, because I think they both took some unofficial visits to OU last summer. And so there was a feeling that Oklahoma at one point was the leader for both of those players. And so the coaching staff obviously had a great relationship with Myers. They still have a very good relationship with Bradley. And so I think that's sort of where that connection is. Uh, what we do know recently is Bradley has talked about his official visits. Two schools that he wants to officially visit during the season are Texas A&M and USC. So it doesn't sound like he's going to be on campus in June. And that was kind of a question as to whether he was going to be a part of that big barbecue weekend. He may still take an unofficial visit to USC over the summer, but he definitely wants to push back some of his visits for game days. And USC is going to be one of those visits. Now, a lot of people thought 
that he took an unofficial visit to Tennessee and there was a lot of, uh, you know, reviews from him about Tennessee, which gave people the impression that maybe Tennessee was his leader. Maybe he was going to commit to Tennessee. That obviously didn't happen. So it's one of those things where, you know, he's talked up some schools and he's had a lot of interest in some schools. USC's angle is definitely with the coaching staff and getting to know the coaching staff and having a good relationship uh, with Roy Manning. And so uh, we're going to see how that develops and if USC can get him on campus unofficially. I think that's the biggest deal. He's taken some unofficial visits this past spring, but he has not been to USC. And so you got to get him on campus and you got to sort of get that ball rolling, get some traction because to my knowledge, he's never visited USC. So his connection again is just with the coaching staff. So you want to be able to get him out in the West coast, get him in LA. And then you've got to get a read as to whether, you know, that's not too far from home. If his family's comfortable with that, because there's big difference between going to OU from Missouri and going to LA from Missouri. And he's not from Kansas city or St. Louis uh, specifically. He's not necessarily a city kid. So you definitely want to get him around um, the city and just the campus and the other players and if you can get him on an unofficial visit this summer and then follow it up with an official visit at some point during the season, which, again, is a little bit open-ended as to how many visitors USC wants to have during the season, because that's been something that USC hasn't done a whole lot of. And, you know, quite frankly, there's been not a lot of reason to bring kids in during the season because there's been such low attendance and the game atmospheres have been terrible. So you're hoping that USC starts to win some games. People come out to see Lincoln Riley. They want to see a good football product on the field and you pack the stands and you have a great football environment. Then it's better for your recruiting to bring those kids in to be able to experience that. Because when USC is hopping and they're winning games and the Coliseum is packed, it's a great game day environment. But certainly it hasn't been like that in the past few years. And so even with Pete Carroll's staffs, actually, to be fair, did not put a lot of emphasis on having a bunch of official visit weekends full of recruits. Some schools just do that. Some schools stack every weekend, basically, with a bunch of recruits. And Pete Carroll staff didn't do that. They'd have like two, maybe three weekends where they'd have some kids in there. They used to usually push it back to the end of the season. It'd be for the Notre Dame game. It'd be for the UCLA game at home. Um, and maybe they'd bring in like a guy early in the season. They'd bring like one or two recruits in early in the year, like first game of the year, second game of the year. But then pretty much throughout the rest of the season, there were no official visitors. So it's going to be interesting to see how this staff decides to organize that and whether they want to have, you know, a handful of kids every weekend or they want to sort of, have, you know, put it all on one weekend at the end of the year. I don't know. We're going to see how that um, sort of uh, filters out. And certainly what happens during the summer is also going to dictate that. Gerard, just hypothetical, you take over a recruiting department, you're in charge of setting up these sort of visits and stuff like that. Are you going to be a stack visits on a single weekend kind of guy? Or are you spreading them out? What would now, be I'm, your... I'm spreading them out and okay. I'm okay. probably not going to have more than four official visitors, three or four, probably any given game week outside of if you're playing UCLA at the end of the year and UCLA's dog water and you feel like, you know, that's a good win that you can get, or yeah. maybe you can host Notre Dame and you're really confident, you know, we can, we can pace these guys and look good in front of these recruits. 
you really have to sort of play it as to the opponent. Um, but I don't think USC on just a random sort of hosting Oregon State or hosting Arizona type of weekend, the, the game environment is not going to rival or compete with something in the SEC, right? So you don't want to necessarily try to compete with that. Um, and unless again, you, you have one guy that you're bringing in and you feel like it's a, 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 a weekend where it's a decent game, but you definitely want to be able to focus on that one player. Um, you know, Taka Curtis is a good example of a kid that has made some overtures about wanting to spend more one-on-one time. Now he's going to make a commitment in, I think, July. So you're not going to be able yeah. to necessarily wait to that point to bring him in. Uh, on an official visit, or maybe you could and just say, Hey, you know what? Commit wherever you're going to commit. And we're going to still try to get you in after you make that commitment. That's always dicey because obviously the kid's going to feel like, Oh, I'm not really sure if I want to go on visits after I've shut down the recruiting process, especially during the season. Cause a lot of these kids want to concentrate on their senior years as well. And so they don't want to necessarily drag the recruiting process into the season. And, and I think that's been definitely more of a thing with the early signing period where guys are getting it done during the summer more than ever. So it obviously depends on your options. But, yeah, the big, huge recruiting weekends, I don't know, man. I, I want to definitely focus on those players a little more. And I think if you've got a dozen-plus guys, it makes it more difficult to be able to have that one-on-one time. Um, I mean, I'm I'm obviously biased because I know what has worked in the past for USC – and I'm sure there's the argument, well, this isn't, you know, USC 2005, right? This is USC 2022, 2023, and times are different. But I think at the end of the day, you do have to be cautious about spreading yourself too thin on these weekends and not, you know, really being able to spend a lot of time to be able not just to host and be able to recruit those players but being around them enough just to take the time to observe and get a read on what's going on you know when you're around them enough and just away from football there's little conversations that can happen between a parent and a coach where all of a sudden you just get an idea like oh maybe there's something else here that's working and we haven't necessarily covered that or there's some hesitation about this specific thing. So you, you're trying to create as much opportunity to get FaceTime and to be with those guys. And when it's just a crazy chaotic mess, cause you got 20 guys on campus and you're running around, you know, trying to carpool these guys here. And then these guys are supposed to be over here. And then there's a photo shoot and then you're back on the field. And I don't know if you're able to get all that time. And then the other thing is having a bunch of recruits during a game week is obviously going to take some of your attention away from your actual game and your game plan, because it does take some time to organize. And these coaches do have to be certain places uh, to be able to talk to the recruits and sit down with them. And if you're focused on the game on Saturday, you're really not thinking about recruiting so much. So that's always a little bit of a balance as well. Gerard, I think you made a lot of great points and it just emphasizes why I want to hire you for Chris Trevino tech. Well, it emphasizes why you have to have a big support staff. This is why Alabama and North I want Bay you to run it, Gerard. That's what I'm points. saying. I want you to run I, it. I appreciate the offer, but I'm I'm gonna get your com- no- I'm gonna get your commitment by the end of this three hour podcast. I'm gonna get it. I'm gonna get it. And just touching back to uh to Bradley, six foot five, two hundred ten pounds, sort of the the 
the lightest sort of edge rusher. That's sort of the the position he is labeled at, the edge uh, prospects that USC is sort of involved with. Obviously, you have Mateo Ugialele, the big one on the board. Jaden Wayne is someone, the Washington uh, defensive lineman turned edge prospect. Uh, Tuasili Akana is another guy. You know, Hunter Clegg recently put USC in his top seven, a guy that visited uh, during the spring. Dylan Gooden was someone who, who visited as well but sort of has fallen off. So we've talked about multiple positions. We've talked about quarterback. We've talked about offensive tackle and that offensive line. We've talked about uh, running back in the 2023 class. We've even touched on tight end. Uh, we haven't really touched on edge as much. doesn't seem to be sort of maybe like that marquee position that USC needs to hit on for 2023. Uh but as you sort of warned on the peristyle, because there is sort of this discussion going on about Mateo Ugielele, and we've talked about, you know, how we feel pretty good about USC. You know, he's visited, what, close to eight times, it feels like, uh, since Lincoln Riley got hired in December. He's been on campus a lot. A lot of, I talked to him uh, last week for Bosco Showcase and whatnot. It was kind of tight-lipped on things. Uh, wasn't really in a talking mood, and a lot of people seem to seem to take that reading the the interview as sort of oh maybe he's not that serious about USC. I you're you're reading way too much into it, I think, because the kid can be super super over the top in his uh uh his his deep dark love for USC, and that doesn't always yield you uh the commitment at the end. The tale's just like not that big of a talker in some in some regards to that. But you warned about not putting all their eggs. In certain baskets. Yeah, I think with uh, Mateo Ungulele, he is certainly a national recruit, first and foremost. And he's had a lot of exposure to schools outside of the Pac-12. So he's not one of those recruits that sort of insulated himself by choice to being a West Coast recruit. And some highly recruits do that. They just feel comfortable playing closer to home. And you sort of know, okay, He's taking visits to Cal. He's taking visits to Oregon. He's taking visits to Washington. Maybe there's a visit to Oklahoma in there. But most of the options that he's looking at are going to keep him closer to home. With Mateo, he's a national guy, and he's going to have a lot of looks and interest from schools all over the nation. And I don't think USC is at that point to where they're winning and consistent enough to where there's layups there with those types of guys. I don't think there's the Chris Calippo, Stephon Johnson, five-star guy coming out of high school that everybody says, well, he's going to USC. USC's just not at that point yet. They may get to that point. I think they will get to that point much quicker with Lincoln Riley than they ever were going to with Clay Helton. In other words, Clay Helton was constantly trying to build up credibility each year because he was never a head coach. He was never an off to coordinator that even called his own plays. So he was always trying to show the trajectory of the program as going up. And the moment it went down, it was like he had to rebuild that whole thing over again because you had a lot of high school coaches, a lot of trainers, a lot of fans, a lot of people who doubted him. With Lincoln Riley, he's already done it at Oklahoma. So if he's able to win nine, ten games this season, Everybody's going to look at that as, okay, second year, USC is going to be in the national championship hunt. That will be a narrative and a headline nationwide. And so you'll have 
more kids buying in and you'll have more layups for USC locally where they get in on a kid early and they're able to lock him up, whether it's publicly or silently. And you kind of think, okay, he's definitely going to USC. I think that USC has done a fantastic job recruiting Mateo Ungalale. I think the last staff actually did a very good job recruiting him because they've emphasized a lot of the stuff off the field. And I think that's one of the main differences between he and his older brother, DJ. I think DJ tended to be a little more about football, whereas Mateo, I think there's off the field things, certainly with his music career. Young Young Concrete. Concrete. I think he's definitely considering that more. And from what I've been told with sources, he's on a different path than DJ in terms of the people that are influencing him in his recruitment and just sort of what he's looking for. So I think that bodes well for USC. And as I said in the thread, actions always speak louder than words in recruiting. And that also bodes well for USC because he has been on campus a bunch of times. And so he's very comfortable. I think with Sean Nua, I think he has a very good relationship with Sean Nua. I think when we're talking about the hybrid rusher position, the quote unquote edge rusher position, I feel like Mateo is a guy that's a little more put your hand on the ground, yeah. get that weight on and become a five technique or a three technique. I think he's another one of those guys that will hurt himself ceiling wise, trying to stay at 260, 265 his entire college career and not just go ahead and be 290, 300, whatever it is and go get that money as a three technique. Cause he has a lot of skill. He's a very skilled big man. Some big men, are just brute force, strong guys, and they use their power. He's a guy that is legitimately skilled, has great footwork, has great handwork. Um, I think he's got a good instinct in space. Uh, I think mostly kind of for a lot of his career there at St. John Bosco, he wanted to play tight end. He wanted to play receiver. I think that was his dream and that was his preference. And now he's sort of selling more into, okay, I'm going to buy that I'm a defensive lineman and that I can be a great defensive lineman. And so that I think he's just mentally sort of getting to that point where he's buying into playing that position exclusively. Um, but I think that he's one of those rare guys that has a ton of skill as a pass rusher at that position. But there's other guys that are you, you named that I think maybe they don't even play and they're more of those stand-up type guys. So you're really talking about position edge rusher, that is two different positions. Sometimes it's three different positions because some of these guys are really going to be more defensive linemen at the end of the day. And then you get a guy like Shadavian Bradley, who's going to be more of a stand-up edge guy. He's probably not going to gain enough weight to put his hand on the ground and be a five technique. Whereas uh, you've got guys like Malik Bryant who may end up being fast enough to where they're not long enough and tall enough that you want to put them at the line of scrimmage. You want to back them off. And then they end up in that sort of weird Sam Nickelbacker type of position. Uh, again, we talk about Eric Gentry, who transferred over from Arizona State. A lot of the guys that I've talked to that have seen him in person, guys that have uh, that have coached him, they say that it would be a mistake just to throw him on the line of scrimmage and make him an edge rusher. He's a guy that you should back off and be able to play in space. Despite his height, he has a lot of agility and ability. So he could be more of a wrinkle-type player for USC. So you have – different types of players at that edge rusher position. And I think with USC, because Mateo is going to be such a national recruit, he's definitely not a guy that you just say, hey, man, we feel really good about him. We've got a good relationship with him and make him plan A. And then all of a sudden he goes Mikhail Williams, he goes Christian Miller, 
he ends up being one of those guys that, you know, over the summer USC thought he was a done deal. And then all of a sudden during the season, you know, you lose some games and you lose that momentum. And now all of a sudden you're, you're starting to lose recruits because of it, because that can happen. You know, we don't know what's going to happen next season. And that does influence and impact what USC is going to be able to do recruiting wise. Absolutely. Gerard, we are sort of approaching that, that time when we like to take our first break. But before we do that, we have to circle back to some, to a topic that we mentioned in sort of that, or that I mentioned in that, that rundown of USC recruiting news and topics. And obviously that's one Jordan Addison. I know there's a, probably a lot of USC fans listening to this. They were like, no, we'll go back and talk about Jordan Addison. Okay. Well, we're going to talk about Jordan Addison right now. As we mentioned, took his official visit over the weekend, finally got that dub confirmed, did it. As I mentioned, tweets were sent out, tweets were deleted uh, to add to sort of the, the hoopla around Mr. J.A., uh, the great wide receiver out of the DMV and the Pittsburgh transfer. Reports have come out over the last sort of 24 hours that it's down to USC and Texas. And that's an interesting one because obviously Alabama, there was a lot of smoke with the, with the Crimson Tide when he first came out with USC. You know, Pete Thamel uh, tweeted out earlier, or I believe last week or earlier in the week that he is expected to maybe expected to check out Alabama. That wasn't like a definite. So there was some wriggle, wiggle room to possibly not do that. And it seems like, you know, he could still do it, but it seems like now the decision is coming up between the Trojans and the Longhorns. And Gerard, I kind of look at these two programs, USC, Texas, and I made this point with Ryan on the Peristyle podcast. They have very similar, like, they, they stack up very similar in this point of time. You know, you have Texas last season, garbage, five and seven. USC last season, dumpster fire, four and eight. Both went in and got the two, uh, two five star transfer quarterbacks, Texas with Quinn Ewers, uh, USC with Caleb Williams, you know, fire. Both got great city life. You know, Austin, Texas, fun time to be in there. L.A. goes without saying. Both got, you know, ridiculous amount of, you know, kind of the donors, NIL kind of uh, sphere. You know, Texas has that ridiculous endowment. Uh, you know, USC has funds to get things done like that. So and then obviously two new coaches, Sark, obviously not in his first year, um, in his second year, but an offensive minded coach, Lincoln Riley, in his first year here. At USC, also offensive uh, genius, as some would say. So if you kind of look at them like that, they kind of stack up similar. And I think just, you know, how Addison with his relationship with Caleb Williams, I think I would take USC in that fight. I think USC would want that fight against Texas over, say, Alabama. I don't know if you feel that way, uh, but that was just kind of thoughts I had on the Parasol podcast. And I just want to get your thoughts on that, too as we talk about Jordan Addison and this official visit. Yeah, with – I think the biggest difference there when you're listing the comparisons with Texas and USC is that Sark had a dumpster fire season last season and is the coach this year. Yeah, <laughs> yes, that is, that is the one big caveat. Had a dumpster fire season last year and fired their head coach, and now they've got a new head coach that uh, has a very good track record in terms of – being able to win and being able to get his program into the college football playoff. It's interesting, obviously, because you've got two offensive-minded head coaches, but I think both of them have done a good job, uh, at least Sark as a coordinator, continuing to want to have a good run-balanced 
offense. Now, it's a little difficult to see because Sark obviously, his most success, I think, at this point, two places would have been at USC and Alabama. Uh, not a ton of success at Washington. He was the head coach of Washington, but that's where we know him as seven win Sark because they weren't really able to get past that point of being sort of a mediocre team. I think a lot of people, including USC, Pat Hayden thought that was a job well done because he took Washington from being winless to seven wins. But as I said before, taking a team from not winning a game to winning seven games is a different type of job than taking a team from seven wins to 11 wins. So I think with what he did at USC and what he did at Alabama, the one common thing in both of those jobs is that he had a defensive coordinator as a head coach and he had a lot of autonomy as an offensive coordinator. But I know at USC, Pete Carroll was always a guy that liked to balance with the offensive coordinator. And he tended to have guys that were very accomplished, I guess I would say, from a pass offense standpoint, because he would be the guy that would interject more of the conservative approach. And I think that's how it and how it goes at Alabama as well. I think you have your offensive coordinator, the offensive coordinator, it works best at Alabama when he wants to be aggressive and wants to pass the ball. And then you bring in Nick Saban, who's the conservative voice that says, no, stop passing. This is when we need to get aggressive and go right tackle. This is when we need to start punishing them. We need to get more physical at this point in the game because he's watching the game unfold from a defensive perspective. So he's seeing that other team's defense and he wants to see, okay, offensively, this is what we can do. This is what we can take advantage of. So there's a really nice balance there. Uh, when it comes to that, when you have a defensive coordinator as a head coach, and then you've got this young, talented uh, offensive coordinator that wants to be aggressive in the passing game. So now you have Sark as the head coach at Texas, and you kind of wonder, okay, how is he going to be in terms of his run ba- uh, uh, his run pass balance? We know that Lincoln Riley has always sort of had that, and he had that at Oklahoma, where despite you know not being under a defensive-minded head coach, He's a guy that still interjects a lot of run balance. So I think offensively, uh, there are some similarities there in terms of they're not just a complete spread offense. Texas has had a good run at bringing in transfers at wide receiver. USC has had a good run at bringing transfers in at wide receiver. They've got Mario Williams, they've got Brendan Rice, and then they got Terrell Bynum there. So good players. Texas has had probably even more success uh, being able to get some of the guys that they've gotten. So you know, it's one of those things where he's coming in, he's between those two schools, he's got to compete uh, for a starting job against some very good players. I think he mirrors more of what USC already has, speaking of Jordan Addison. I think he's similar, you know, to a Mario Williams. He's he's a little more like a, a Gary Bryant, those type of players. Um, I think it really sort of depends on the way he's looking at it is where is my brand going to be supported the most uh, and where am I going to place myself to get the best draft status? I think that's really the thing. And, and so that's going to be the difficult thing. I think USC has obviously done a better job more recently in producing wide receivers for the NFL than Texas has. Um, now Sark is going to say, Hey, look what I did at Alabama, but that was Alabama. That wasn't what he's done in Texas. Whereas Lincoln Riley could still say, Hey, we did good things at Oklahoma as well. You know, Dennis Simmons was very good at developing 
receivers for Oklahoma. But in addition to that, USC, even when they're bad, has right. done a good job developing wide receivers for the NFL. That was the conundrum trying to figure out why Kerry Colbert could not recruit better at USC because not only did you have a pass-happy offense with Graham Harrell, but you had an offense and a tradition that far exceeded anything else in the Pac-12. And they were still losing guys to Oregon despite putting guys like Amon Ra and uh, you know Robert Woods and Marquise Lee and Nelson Aguilar, so many of those guys uh, going to the NFL and developing some really good players for the NFL at the wide receiver position. So USC definitely trumps Texas in that respect. Trump's Texas in that respect. And it is interesting that it feels like we are coming to a close with this recruitment. You know, hearing things from the Texas side sounds like, you know, they feel very confident with their, with their side and how they feel like they hit that, uh, that visit out of the ballpark. I mean, Texas, I'm sure they went all out. You know, I, I talked to someone connected to the USC side and they felt very confident with, with Jordan Addison and his visit. So again, it's the age of NIL, it's the age of transfer portal, you know, anything could happen, but I feel like I still, if you, you put a gun to my head, I still would be picking USC in terms of going up against Texas for a guy like Jordan Addison. And I've mentioned it before. I've mentioned that, you know, the DMV kids, they really like the feel of LA. It just has that, that draw to them. And we talked about it a lot when we talked about Nicholas Harbor, but you know, that, that's something that, that has to be taken into consideration. And there's also this thing I wanted to kind of mention how there's this board post that popped up on our board. It's from a Texas board. I'm not sure which one talking about how, uh, the Texas wide receiver coach who was at Pittsburgh and I'm kind of blanking on his name right now. Unfortunately, Brennan or Marion or something like that. I don't have it off the top of my head, but it was kind of a board post talking about how the Texas visit was sort of him guilt tripping sort of Addison to make the visit to Texas. You know, like, you know, I helped develop you into this uh, Blitnikoff guy. You know, I'm here at Texas, you know, just come, just come take the visit. You know, that's sort of what the board post was saying, but I sort of heard that that's not really like, the case. So I just wanted to kind of put that out there that that obviously that'd be a, a make a USC fan feel good reading that. But from what I've heard, that's not particularly the case. And it would, if it was guilt tripping him, I don't think Texas would be considered, you know, one of the finalists if that, that was the case, or maybe that it was enough to make them a finalist. I'm not sure. But, but what I'm hearing, that doesn't seem to be the case, uh, with Jordan Addison in sort of this Texas trip. Yeah. Brennan, uh, Marion. Um, yeah. I was close. I was close. Who, who replaced, uh, uh, Chris Beatty, who is, uh, with the Chargers and Jordan Addison is evidently very close with Chris Beatty, uh, who's obviously now in LA. So there's that relationship that they have. And you also touched on something which I didn't mention, which is another in terms of, you know, comparing Texas with USC and the quarterback position is that he had a pre-existing relationship with Caleb Williams. And so that's it. Now we get ourselves into this spot, and this is very Josh Connerly esque, where <laughs> we talk about logic. We look yeah, at yeah, exactly. We're 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 trying to sort of, you know, connect the dots and look for things through our own perspective as grown adults, 
And also even talking to sources, you have to be wary because sometimes even people in good positions that they should know something, they tend to project their own logic onto the situation as to why they think such and such. I mean, talking to Brandon Huffman, nobody was closer to Josh Connolly's recruitment as a writer and an analyst than Brandon Huffman, not by a long shot. And so, you know, Brandon was thinking USC all the way. and there were people even closer than Brandon was to that situation who were thinking USC all the way. And I kind of was listening to what I was getting and I'm like, that all makes a lot of sense, but are you really reading the kid or are we just kind of extrapolating what we know and then putting up against logic and coming to a conclusion? And sometimes that's all you can do, right? That's all we can do because you're not in the living room when you know, these conversations are happening and certainly with transfers, there is a lot less said. It seems like these circles are tighter and smaller and there's not as much going on. But I can tell you right now, Addison has even more relationships with people at USC than Caleb Williams. So it goes even beyond that. So you start checking these boxes and you go, yeah, he's, he's going to go to USC. He ends up at USC. But again, there was a lot of that that went on with Josh Connerly. And at the end of the day, it's like, oh, well, you know, I went to Oregon because it's more like Seattle. And you're like, what? <laughs> Come on, man. But that's just how it goes. And like you said, you interject NIL and you interject some different things. And that can potentially change the game at the last minute. So, yeah, we sit here and there is a lot of confidence and optimism coming from Texas. And there's optimism that has been with USC for quite a while. So. It's just one of those things where we'll find out when Jordan Addison decides to let people know. <laughs> I mean, you can really try to sit here and be a guru and guess at it. Uh, but at the end of the day, he's going to pick that school. And then it's like, okay, where does that school that didn't get him go from there? And where does the school that have him go from there with him in the lineup? And again, at USC and Texas, you've got very good guys coming in. Um, I think USC roster-wise, has more guys, kind of like Jordan Addison. I, I mean, I say that, and I don't probably know the Texas roster quite as, quite as well, so maybe I'm, I'm speaking out of turn there. But, I mean, USC does have Kyle Ford. They do have Brendan Rice. Those guys are not like uh, Jordan Addison. Uh, but I see, you know, Mario Williams kind of sort of is. And, uh, and, and I think Gary Bryant and some of those guys that are smaller, faster receivers uh, are a little more similar to him. Um, but it's one of those things that – you're trying to uh, gauge, I think, at the end of the day, it's really about draft status with him, and I think it is about the brand from an NIL standpoint. I said before, though, the talk that he's getting millions of dollars is not accurate. I've been told that by people that know um, from him that have said, the $3 million to go to USC was completely fabricated. That probably came from the pit staff. Um, you know, maybe at some point he's, you know, at this point it's, it's gone up, <laughs> you know, but originally, uh, those numbers weren't factual. So, uh, that might be something that comes into play as well. Uh, but it's, um, it's one of those things where we kind of sit back and say, all right, we're, we're hearing that, you know, he could go to either school at this point because I'm sure 
he's made those overtures to both programs. And that happens quite often too. It's hard to say no to these mm-hmm. coaches mm-hmm. and these people. They're professional salesmen, you know, and it, and they make it hard. You've got good relationships. They get close with you. They get close with your family. And um, this is something that we see uh, throughout. And uh, it's something that we saw a lot with even Clay Helton's staff. Clay Helton, he had a good relationship with a lot of recruits. I've said it time and time again, a lot of recruits and their families liked Clay Helton. And they liked USC. USC has a lot of inherited advantages when it comes to recruiting. But on the field development and draft picks and winning were not there. So it's hard to give that call and say, sorry, you know, I don't want to go to your college because I just don't think you're a good coach. That's it. But it comes down to. And so kids don't want to say that. So they don't say anything. <laughs> they just don't make that call. And then they go and they commit. And then the staff is like, well, gosh, we thought we were going to get them. And to just touch on the tweet real quick that there was a tweet with Jordan and his mother at the Annenberg sort of uh, studio, the TV studio they have it was sent out by a USC adjunct professor and it was quickly deleted. And that obviously when you put something out there on Twitter and then it's like deleted like that, it makes the conspiracy feel much, 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 uh, much more conspiracy. That's not a word, but you, you get what I'm saying. And, you know, that was kind of taken down because it, it, I think there was a, a, a worry that it was sort of a, a violation, you know, can't really have someone, an admin tied to the school posting about a recruit on campus. And that's sort of their interpretation of that. And I don't even know if that's sort of like an interpret, like be on the safe side interpretation wise, or that's sort of like a hard, hard rule. I can't, can't do it or whatever. But, you know, he was there with his mom. Looks like he maybe has a, has aspirations of maybe, you know, getting to sports media, which, you know, if we, Gerard, if we want to go more logic, you know, LA, great market for sports media, would you say? Yes, obviously. I mean, I, I mean, again, we're, <laughs> we're, we're going, we're going into the, the, the know, logic rabbit hole. Right. What's the rationale? And you're trying to, I don't want to say we're like you, you talk yourself into, yeah, this is why he's going to commit to USC because you look objectively at the various different things. And it's just one of those deals where, again, you go back to Josh Connolly. That's a great example of what we thought stands in terms of what would attract him to USC and coming out of his own mouth, the things that he was looking for in a college and what USC provides. But that's just not always the way the cookie crumbles. Certainly not. And I think with that, we're going to go into our quick break. And then we're going to come back and talk about some JUCO things, new commit, a target that was on campus, and then we're going to talk about the the big passing tournament they were at uh, over the weekend. So let's take our quick break, and we'll be right back. Baseball has begun, which means you need to listen to Fantasy Baseball Today in 5, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network. Join Scott White, Chris Towers, and me, Frank Samphill, every Monday through Saturday as we deliver all of your fantasy baseball needs in just five minutes. We'll break down the biggest performers, news, and prospects who could make an impact this season. Make sure to download and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Odyssey app, and everywhere else podcasts are found. You ready for this? Yeah. If it's the most original and heartfelt movie in years. Magic like this comes around once in a lifetime. This Friday, experience it with your whole family. Can we do it again? 
F Ready PG. Gerard, how was that break? It was fantastic as always. Excellent, excellent. Glad to hear it. Uh, as I mentioned, we want to talk about a third commit that we didn't talk about at the top of the hour. Uh, the Juco offensive lineman, uh, Cooper Lovelace out of Butler Community College in Kansas. He is unranked right now. I mean, I could see that changing. You know, the Juco rankings aren't always, you know, you know, they're, they're not quick to be, to, to give rankings out. And it feels like the Juco recruiting scene has really, really taken a hit with the transfer portal. Uh, it used to be every couple, every cycle, it seemed like USC would at least kick the tires of at least one Juco kid. Now it doesn't seem that way. Uh, same with colleges across the country when there's a portal right there filled with guys looking for new homes, but Cooper Lovelace, six foot five, 320 guy, just a freak in terms of his flexibility. There's that video, uh, that's out of him doing the full splits and kind of moving like, like a Cirque du Soleil guy, not a six foot five, 320 pound offensive lineman, just freaky athleticism in that regard. Can play right tackle, can play tackle at either side, most likely probably be a right tackle, but most importantly, Mainly played interior, you know, that right guard, left guard can can switch between those two. And I think that's where he's going to help out the most with this team in terms of giving that that depth. He has a raw prospect. You know, he did not start playing football until his senior year of high school. That's one reason why he's so sort of under the radar. You know, he's from Kansas. You know, that's not necessarily a hotbed of where coaches go to find college football players. But when you didn't start playing until you're, you're, you're a senior you don't have tape throughout the season, so it just seems, feels like a little bit impossible to kind of get recruited in that regard. So kind of a under-the-radar guy, chose USC over offers from Iowa State. Uh, Florida had entered the picture. Uh, Oklahoma State, Rice, took some official visits to those schools. But USC really sealed the deal with their official visit. You know, right after that, he was like, I got to go home. I got to think about it. Don't want to make a business decision in LA after, you know, the, the lights and the, and the glitz and stuff, but woke up, decided, you know, this is it, got admitted to the school, said, all right, said the papers, I'm assigning him. And, you know, he was no nonsense, got it done right there, right then and there. And yeah, is the guy who loves football. You know, there's a picture that Ryan put up in his story of him sort of working with Josh Henson in the middle of their like beautiful brunch restaurant setting, working on foot technique and hand placement. You know, he's the kind of guy who, you know, you know, when they take these official visits, these kids, you know, maybe they'll go out and do some some bowling or they'll go see a movie, you know, just see what the city has to offer. But, you know, he's a kid who's like, no, I don't want to go bowling. I want to sit and talk with a strength coach for an over an hour because that's what I want to do. He eats, breathes, and sleeps football. So, you know, I think it's a really, a really good pickup. Uh, you know, it's not, you know, a Josh Connerly in terms of, you know, being a five-star guy, a big war daddy, as some people would say, but I think he's got a lot of potential. He's got three years to develop. I think just because of the experience he has at the junior college level, and I know that's not like Trinity League football or whatever, or it's not playing at a, at a power five conference out of the portal or anything like that, but that is college experience. And that's more than what USC has now. At the guard spot. So he is raw. I'll give you that, but he's got a lot of tools to work with and I can see him winning the backup job at one of those guard spots and, you know, get some time this year in blowouts. Put, you know, put those backups in, let him get used to it, let him build his strength up. 
and I really like the pickup drug. Yeah, the Kansas Juco scene is definitely, from a competition standpoint, a bit higher than the high school scene. So, you know, the Kansas Juco's, they bring in guys from all over the country. You'll get a lot of kids from Florida there. You even get some kids Mm -hmm. from Texas and California. So it's a, a decent amount of competition that they get. Sometimes you get guys that sort of reinvent themselves a bit at that level, and you have to be a bit wary because it is uh, Juco competition against Juco competition. But the one thing about uh, Lovelace is that he, I believe, was a qualifier out of high school. He just wasn't highly recruited because he hadn't played a lot. And yeah. So that's one of the biggest differences when we talk about USC recruiting Juco players is that a lot of Juco players are Juco players because academically they couldn't make it coming out of high school. Mm-hmm. And that tends to make it a lot more difficult for USC to recruit. But when a guy is qualified out of high school and he's just going the junior college route because he was under-recruited, he has those grades. And so it's not such a big deal. So I think that was something that USC could be a bit more aggressive with him. Um, I think he's a big body. He's an interior guy. And USC still needs more of those guys. They need talented players. And like you said, I think from a film evaluation standpoint, He's not, you know, super athletic, you know, running downfield like Jeff Byers. Um, he's not probably going to play offensive tackle uh, in college. So he doesn't fill that need that USC has to get a guy that's a franchise guy to be able to play left tackle and lock it down. That's still going to be an issue for USC. That's still going to be something that they're going to either have to supplement personnel-wise with an extra tight end, or maybe they're just going to have to – Hope that Caleb Williams can, uh, can have a sixth sense and be able to work around there because we're just not necessarily sure how well that position is going to, uh, excel next year. I, I think there's a lot of potential there with Cortland Ford and there's a lot of people that are putting a lot on his potential. I think somewhere somebody posted a draft, uh, a mock draft that had him going as a first round pick. Which, yeah, the number, number, number 32 overall pick to the Buffalo Bills, uh, CBS mock draft. Yeah. yeah, that's, that's a bit of a reach, I think, right now, just about the amount of, uh, you know, experience he has combined with production that he has. But again, you know, we talked about the PFF ratings at the end of the year for USC. Uh, they were pretty high at the offensive line. Now it's, it's, I don't know how those rankings are put together or how those ratings are calculated because we know that USC was playing some horrible teams at the end of the year and they were playing horrible football. So I, I think there's a grade there just in terms of, you know, how, how you keep the guy uh, that you're going against in front of you and how you're able to block him, uh, how many times you get beat, so on and so forth. Um, maybe, you know, yards. I'm sure there's a lot of other things. But on film, I think Cooper Lovelace is a guy that's going to be interior guy, uh, big body. Um, does a good job, you know, being able to pull a little bit here and there. Like I said, not the most athletic guy in terms of foot speed or athleticism getting down to the second level of the defense. Um, but, um, USC needs some, some good bodies and they need some guys who are talented, uh, that can go in there and, and add some depth. Again, I, I think there's a little bit of an undervalue to bringing in just more offensive linemen because you end up in these positions where, uh, practice becomes a little harder because you don't want to throw your first team guys in there. And if you've got a couple of injuries, all of a sudden your rotation thins out a bit and uh, you don't have the good scout team that you normally have, just having a little more depth, having some you know Division One scholarship guys in there as opposed to walk-ons. Did you get to see my, my uh, Cooper Lovelace challenge video? I did not. Mm. But did you see the initial video? I did not. Okay, well, I don't. I might cut this or I might not, but 
I did get to see your tattoo this past weekend. Tattoo, tattoo, tattoo. Let's talk about a tattoo. You saw it. I was wearing shorts out there. I know. I said that's. I saw it. Okay. Well, then you'll have to look it up later. But yeah, I mean, you gotta, Gerard. When was the last time you covered a lineman that could do full splits? Um, I don't know. That's not necessarily. I I think like the most important thing for linemen, though. (laughs) I mean, that's great. It shows flexibility, and you know, he won't have a lot of hamstring injuries. So that's a good thing. Not that guards necessarily get a lot of hamstring injuries. Um, what I want to know is balance, footwork, um, you know, wingspan, uh, you know, how strong are his hands? There's, there's a lot of different things that come into play, uh, with that. I, I don't know if the splits is, is necessarily the biggest deal. Um, it'd be cool if he could dunk, but even that is for an interior guy. I know that was like Brandon Peely's thing. That shows some explosiveness, which is good. It means he's probably got a good first step, but the splits, I don't know where that, where, where yoga necessarily comes in with offensive linemen. I don't know, man. You see, you watch these hard knocks programs and what's something they're all doing, that little fun clip they show, all these NFL teams, they got their guys doing yoga. I'm just saying. Yeah, yoga's great, but I don't know that those guys can all do the splits. I mean, I do yoga. I can't, I can't even think about doing the splits. Well, all I'm saying is later tonight when you're bored, pull up my profile and just look at my Cooper Lovelace, Lovelace challenge and let me know what you think. That's all I'm saying. Okay. All right. But we'll end with there with Cooper. Again, nice pickup, six foot five, three twenty. We did a lot of coverage on him when he committed. You can find that at uscfootball.com. You can sign up for a dollar, get a whole month of coverage. You'll find that on your couch. Just 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 go do it. It's 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 a great deal. But we're gonna transition to more JUCO, and that being uh Tyler Junior College linebacker Gavin Forshaw, who USC offered about a week ago. Uh, they, they went out to Tyler, Texas to see him a couple times, decided to pop on that offer. Six foot three, 215 pounds, 11.5 sacks, uh, last season. Let that conference, I believe. He was a, a Dave Campbell small college, uh, all selection. One of two junior college guys to make that list. Uh, that's an honor. And, you know, he's an interesting prospect. You know, we've talked about how USC is involved with the, the Utah transfer, Carson Tabarucci, uh, as, as you know, if you listen, we have to say it with Tabarucci, but you know, that was an interesting offer to go out with USC involved, uh, with Carson in that regard. So, you know, it kind of felt like, you know, maybe Carson is having second thoughts. You know, we felt good about his, his, his potential commitment to the Trojans. He visited twice, uh, you know, Blair and Gulu. Right, right after he entered, kind of, kind of wrote how, you know, the Trojans seem to be the, the favorite to land him. But, you know, in the time of transfer portal, when the, that, that commitment doesn't come initially, it usually doesn't come unless there's like rare circumstances, you know, like a Caleb Williams and possibly a Jordan Addison. But the, the longer it weighs out, you know, it doesn't necessarily bode well for the, the team you initially hear for. Or the the initial team that had all the the momentum early, so this 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 offer was interesting. He did take a visit. We did confirm that uh, our friends over at the the Go Power Cats, the Kansas State site, they they confirmed that. We put it on our board last night. Got a, got a big discussion going. But he is expected to make a commitment to USC or Kansas State pretty soon. You know, he could commit. You know, while we record this podcast, that's how soon it could happen. Could happen next 24 hours. Maybe he's waiting until Friday the weekend. 
what have you. But I don't really have a good read on that either way. It just feels like it is USC or it is Kansas State. Um, again, just looking at the logically, you know, you feel like USC's good there if he's green lit. Um, but yeah, that that's another development and another potential defensive prospect that USC is going to add for the summer. Yeah, the first question that you have is, is he a take for USC? And he is. So we know that, and we know he officially visited. The interesting thing about him, just looking at him position-wise, is sort of where he lines up. Yeah. And is he really a guy that is an either-or take with Car- Carson Tabarucci? So, I'm sorry, I'm going to need more. About- I'm going to need more Tabarucci there. Tabarucci, Tabarucci. Thank, thank you, thank you. Carson is a little more like a Vi Malapai coming out of high school because he did play a lot of running back. He even played some wildcat quarterback, played some wide receiver, an incredibly skilled player from that standpoint. A lot more athletic than uh, Forshaw. Forshaw's a linebacker. You know, Forshaw's uh, probably only been a linebacker. I don't really know much about his high school football career. I believe he's from Tennessee originally, and now yeah. he's at John Tyler. And so I don't know necessarily his, his transformation, you know, as a player, uh, going from Tennessee to, to Tyler, Texas, which is in East Texas and, um, kind of a, a smaller sort of college, uh, junior college conference. Um, they don't tend to play, uh, too many schools outside of that bubble. I mean, occasionally they will. Uh, but it tends to be like Kilgore and Marshall and those types of junior colleges in Texas. So there's, there's kind of like a smaller conference of schools in Texas. And then you've got Kansas, which is big in the JUCO, uh, ranks. And then California, obviously, which is huge. There's nothing even close to California in terms of junior colleges, just the amount and the teams that they have year in and year out. Um, so Forsha, when I watch him on film, he kind of reminds me more, I don't want to say reminds me of, but in terms of, when I'm trying to project where would this guy line up for USC, I see him being more like Eric Gentry in terms of a guy that plays on the outside. He gets a lot of reps as an edge rusher, but he does play off the line of scrimmage and he can play more of a standard linebacker position, which I kind of think that's where USC needs depth more than they do on edge rushers. And he's, you know, listed as six, three, probably not that tall. And so you don't usually want to put those guys in the line of scrimmage. You want to take them off the line of scrimmage because they're just not big enough to be able to handle these offensive tackles. Um, so from that standpoint, I just kind of wonder if Forsha is a little more of a straight linebacker. Uh, Carbon or Carbon I, Carson. I don't know why I want to keep calling him Carbon. Carson. Carbon. Carbon. I keep thinking Carbon uh, probably because it's Tabarucci. I keep getting the the and it's Tabarucci. Not really Tabarucci, but anyways, I digress. Uh, we look at him and he's a little more of a, like an athlete and a guy that potentially could play off. And so I guess at the end of the day, what I'm trying to say is I don't know that this is an either or that they can't take both guys numbers wise. If you're looking at Carson Tabarucci as a linebacker, then you would say, yeah, you probably from a number standpoint, don't need both of those players. They probably end up playing the same position. Uh, but if you look at Carson Tabarucci and you think potentially he could play offense, then, you know, maybe you can bring both of those guys in. So we're still kind of trying to figure that out. 
But the one thing we know for a fact is that USC does and will take Gavin Forsha uh, if he wants to commit. So uh, that's, that's, I think, important because I think USC put a great visit together. You saw some emotes, and obviously people are going to automatically go, well, that's, of course, Jordan Addison. You know, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. You know, the whole emote game for us is kind of, you know, roll your eyes. We've seen emotes come and go. Some of them have, have stuck. Some of them haven't. We're going all the way back to December. You know, I was thinking about this the other day, Chris. We never talked about that original, one of the first emotes. I think one of the first emotes was for Damani Jackson. But there was another emote in December that we were told from very good sources was a player that USC is not even, I think, recruiting anymore. And oh, yes. Do you want to talk about it? I mean, we never, we, the reason why we haven't mentioned the name, cause we not, weren't sure if USC was just going to try to slow play and, you know, you don't want to necessarily put it out there like, Hey, this guy tried to recruit, uh, try to commit <laughs> and USC right. put up an emote and then, yeah, they stopped recruiting him because they weren't really sure what position he would play. And eventually they looked at their board and obviously feel more confident about other players. But yeah, why don't you reveal who that, who, who that was that we heard actually did assign the commitment to USC and it, it produced an emote. Are we doing this? I, I mean, it's not like it's not like Brian Breesy level of uh, things we were hiding. But no, was, no, no. But it was someone we mentioned several times. But it's uh, the four star tight end Jackson Howard, uh, I believe, out of Minnesota. Is that correct, Minnesota? Yeah, yeah, Minnesota. Yeah. So yeah, that, I mean, that was like an early, early emoji, like something. We heard it might have. It, you said there was a Damani one. Was do you think maybe that was the first one? I think so. And then people kind of got confused and thought that there was other ones about for Damani after he commit. And it was like, oh, you know. And, and again, there's been so many emotes. I don't even think the staff even knows all the time. And people <laughs> are just retweeting like, oh, somebody tweeted an emote. I'm gonna tweet an emote too. Like it's it's like all over the place. But it, yeah, it was one of those ones that was the first one where. It's like, yeah, this kid like commit and wants to commit. And it's like, okay, well, when is he going to commit? So we were scrambling to try to figure out things. And then it was like, yeah, they're not really sure if he's going to be a defensive end or a tight end. And I think they came to the conclusion that they just had better players on the board. And so a slow play became a no play <laughs> over time. And, uh, and at this point, I don't think that, you know, USC is really involved with him. So I think, you know, we can just kind of talk about it. Um, but yeah, that was a kind of an interesting one. Obviously Josh Connolly was another one. So I, I, you know, I hesitate to put a lot of, uh, stock into all of the emotes and everything like that. I know people are caught up in it and they, Hey, listen, if the, if the fan base enjoys it and, and they have fun with it, then that's cool. I, I just, there's always sort of the people that when things don't go the way that they're supposed to go, it's like, you know, Oh, you built up expectations because you cited these emotes and you did this and you did that. And it's like, you know, chill out, dude. You like, you realize that you're literally sitting on Twitter waiting for an, a cartoon hand to come up with a peace sign. Like it's just not, it's, it's as silly as you think it would be. So let's just, uh, kind of put it in perspective a little bit here. Um, but yeah, certainly for Gavin Forshaw, I mean, there was that potential. We know that, you know, he's looking at Kansas State as well. Um, but you would assume that he just took that visit to USC and, you know, the timing of it is, is interesting as well. Uh, we've reached out to him, haven't really heard back from him yet in terms of his official visit to USC. Um, he might be at that point, like you said, we kind of get the impression like he, it's decision time for him. And so he's, 
he sort of buckled down and he may have already made that decision. Yeah, I believe the quote was through sources is that his recruitment is over and a decision will be coming soon. What does soon mean? Could that have been that night? Obviously it was not. Could have been 24 hours, possibly the weekend, whatever. Not really sure, but I would expect USC going to find out if they get a new linebacker or not within the next couple days. That, that would be my safe assumption. Uh, that's like our last, like, sort of recruiting specific talking point. We did hit up a tournament this week, Gerard. It was a very long drive for you. It was a very short drive for me. Uh, the <laughs> Millican, the first annual Millican passing tournament, it was a high school tournament, so this isn't like seven on seven teams, like premium or ground zero, or whatever. This is your high school team, and it was a loaded field, you know, kind of going into it. And it was at Memorial Vets, uh, Memorial Veterans Stadium in Long Beach at LBCC on their campus. And we covered it. You know, Jared Perez, our, our intern, he was there, got some good film, got a couple interceptions on the tape of, uh, Malachi Crawford with his Pacifica team. And, you know, Bosco was there. Uh, Modern Day was there. Milliken, obviously, his host team, they were there. And, uh, Long Beach Poly was supposed to be there, but they had to drop out due to COVID. Uh, Lincoln High School in San Diego was supposed to be there. They had to drop out. Bishop Alamany was supposed to be there. Apparently they didn't have enough people, so they had to drop out. So there was some key dropouts at the end. It's kind of a, it was kind of a hot day. Um, but overall, you know, we got to go out at least, this is our first passing thing in a while, Gerard. I can't remember the last one we did as a, as a team. Yeah, kind of the, the, the first team um, tournament that we've had, you know, this, this, this off season, which is nice. I mean, the schools are in spring ball. So, you know, be able to go to practices and, and see some of these showcases and things like this. But um, it was actually the first time that I think a lot of these schools have, have seen other schools in, in a long time, which is always tends to raise the amount of intensity. And yeah, I mean, out of the gates, it looked like it was just going to be a stacked tournament. Kind of, it kind of didn't end up being, what we hoped it would be. Um, but there was some good, you know, things to see there were, you know, some, some players here and there that, you know, you don't see, uh, very often. And, um, you know, the competition level was, was decent. Uh, I think, um, you know, for me, it's just kind of seeing some 2024 guys. Uh, I think, uh, you know, talking to modern day, uh, sophomore going to be a junior quarterback, Elijah Brown, was interesting just because we know with USC, they missed out on D- uh, Dylan Rayola. We talked a little bit about, you know, what's the next move for USC. At this point, they haven't really reached out to Elijah Brown. They haven't been in communication with Elijah Brown. Uh, they're not recruiting Elijah Brown right now. And I talked to him a little bit about whether USC is still a potential quarter for him. You know, can they still recruit him at this point? Is it too late? He didn't really want to say one way or the other. Um, I got the sense like he's definitely excited and looking forward to the schools that have offered him and have been recruiting him. Just this past week, he got scholarship offers from Alabama and Oregon. So he's thinking about those schools. He's not thinking about the schools that haven't offered him or, mm-hmm. or re-offered him. I should say USC did offer him with the last staff, but they have not re-offered him. And there, it doesn't sound like there's been much communication of any uh, recently uh, from Lincoln Riley. And we've kind of heard that Lincoln Riley sort of shut it down with a lot of the 2024 quarterbacks once 
uh, Dylan Riola unofficially visited USC and that's that they sat down to talk and, um, Lincoln Riley decided to make Dylan, Dylan Riola his guy. And so we're still kind of seeing, you know, what happens from that, uh, kind of checking in with the 2024 class. There's been some talk. I think last week we discussed, uh, Jaden Davis, uh, who's a 2024 quarterback, the number two ranked quarterback from North Carolina that is, uh, potentially being recruited by USC. Um, so that, that was kind of interesting just to, um, pick, uh, Elijah Brown's brain a little bit, watch some of the players. Um, we saw Spencer Shannon, who wasn't actually playing for modern day, uh, was just a street clothes, but man, I saw him and I thought, gosh, you know, this is, this is the type of kid that, you know, on the West coast, he's playing tight end and he's being recruited as a tight end. But guys, I looked at him and I go, man, you could put weight on this kid and he might be just a fantastic offensive tackle. He's just a big boy. He's like a legitimately six, 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 seven type of kid. Uh, probably 235 at this point, maybe a little bigger than that. Um, you know, <laughs> obviously modern day, they've got, uh, already some good offensive tackles and some good offensive linemen in that 2024 class, which we didn't see Saturday. It wasn't a team thing, uh, from yeah. that standpoint. It was just seven on seven. Um, but yeah, you, you, you know, you take some things and you look for some of the top performers, any guys that really jump out at you, you know, with, uh, Malachi Crawford played pretty well for Pacifica Oxnard. And he's a guy that is being recruited hard by USC. And, uh, like you said, Jared, uh, filmed him and, and talked to him a little bit. So that's coming up on the site. Um, I liked what I saw from Jordan Anderson, the 2024 wide receiver slash defensive back. Uh, that is now playing for Milliken. He played for, I think, Warren last year with uh, Nico Iamaeva. Mm-hmm. Um, now he's at uh, Milliken. And I, I liked what I saw from him at cornerback, too. Uh, USC's really, I don't think, very involved with him because I think you spoke to some of the Milliken guys and got some impressions from those guys in terms of USC's recruitment. I think that's a mistake, though. I, I think he's a good enough player on both sides of the ball that you've got to keep that body warm. you got to kind of keep your foot in the door with a kid like that. He could develop into being one of the top prospects in that class just because he has that ability to play either way. And specifically with his length, playing cornerback, I, I watched him and I was just, mm, I don't know, I, I like what I saw from him. Would you say he's maybe Josh Jackson-esque? Yeah. that's a, I, He's probably not quite that long or, mm-hmm. or that tall. I, he, yeah, he's probably – about the same height, maybe Josh Jackson's a little, little taller. Um, but yeah, a guy that, you know, um, just kind of stood out, you know, how he was playing corner and we don't really hear about him playing defensive back very much. And I think receiver is definitely his first love, but I think with his height, he's a little more intriguing of a prospect as a corner. For sure. And I mainly, I mainly spent most of my time with the Bosco boys, St. John Bosco. They had their top quarterback out, Pierce Clarkson, the Louisville commit, and they had Mateo Uyelele. He was there walking around, hanging out, but he's been he's been banged up. He did not participate in the showcase last week, nor did he participate over the weekend. Probably would have been the biggest matchup issue for any team uh, at that tournament because he was the, the biggest guy there. But he was the spectator. Mainly got to watch those 2024 guys, Marcellus Williams. He took a lot of time. He took like the majority of reps at outside corner. Very physical. Always looks taller every time I see him. I see him. I think he's like one of the top guys that USC needs to focus on for that 2024 class. Always also helps that Max Williams is going to, his older brother is going to be a, a starter uh, for this defense moving forward. Uh, got to see a little bit of Peyton Woodyard, uh, top 2024 safety out of Bosco. And then the one guy I was really looking at is uh, Kingston. I can never say his last name. Kingston, uh, 
Bilaamu Asa. I butchered that. The St. John Bosco linebacker at one point was the number one ranked uh, prospect in California, but he did have that knee injury at that end of that 2020 spring season. Hasn't played since. Uh, just getting back over that, but he was out there with that knee brace and looked pr- pretty good, pretty physical linebacker, but a pretty physical one, even on 7-7, holding, roll, holding guys up, you know, physical with those quote unquote tackles. And, you know, he had, a, he had one hard collision with, the, with another player, but he was all right. And it looks like he's, you know, kind of trusting that knee. There was a, a, a play where he tried to sort of dive off his leg and sort of jump into the air. It was at an awkward angle for an interception. Didn't quite get it. Came down hard, but he was up fine. So it looks like he's, he's trusting that knee a little bit more. He rotated in, uh, but liked what I saw out of him in terms of, you know, his recovery, getting back out there over a, a significant knee injury. And then, Jashan uh, Faltos Ramos, the 2023 quarterback USC's, USC has gotten back involved with. He's, I saw him at the showcase. I spoke with him at the showcase. I'll probably have a story up uh, with him soon. He was at spring practice, uh, took in USC spring camp, had a lot of good things to say about USC and Dante Williams. That offer is still committable. Uh, didn't need a reoffer because Dante was still there. So Dante keeping that, that seat warm uh, with Ramos. He's put on about 10 pounds, so he's looking a little bit thicker. Mainly played that outside cornerback. So, you know, they have a really talented 2024 class on defense. So excited to see what those guys do this season in their junior years. Yeah, one guy that, you know, was sort of a come-out-of-nowhere sleeper prospect that I noticed right out of the gates because we were watching Bosco. And Sierra Canyon was playing against Bosco, and they almost looked, like, identical in terms of their uniforms. <laughs> yeah. So we're like, is Bosco playing against each other here? What, what's going on? Like, because there's a few teams that ended up not yeah, being just, there. they're so scrimmaging. We were not sure. But um, I thought, you know, Josiah Phillips, the uh, 6'4 wide receiver out of Sierra Canyon, uh, he yeah. got the better of Bosco a, a few times. And uh, a lot of length, a really tall kid, um, showed really good down field speed uh, that was the thing that that really kind of uh, impressed me because he's got that height and he was able to bust the cover two a couple times and uh, I, I like what I saw from him I, I need to see a lot more from him I actually haven't watched his huddle film I don't think he played um, in the COVID year so he might have been a little off the radar in terms of game film for some teams but that was a guy that kind of jumped out a little bit as a guy that uh, didn't really know much about him uh, before going into the tournament, but saw him and I could see him getting, uh, you know, a handful of more offers here, uh, as May gets into June. Um, he's one of those guys that that's why you got to get out to the college, you know, college campuses, um, to do some of these camps, you know, because I think that he could probably wow, uh, some schools if he was able to get out there and be able to participate in their camps. True. We usually, Dip after pool play unless we need more film. But do you know who won that tournament? I don't know because I left yeah. early to get back home to avoid. Do you have a, do you have a uh, guess? Do you have a guess? Um, let's see. So we had Modern Day, we had Bosco, we had Losinger, we had Milliken, we had Servite. Uh, Servite as well, which I didn't. I, I kind of went over there and looked at a little bit of Servite and San Clemente that were all uh, were there, but they're really. Not a lot of USC prospects. Most of those guys that were at Survive have now transferred. Um, some of them have transferred back over to Santa Margarita. Santa Margarita. I'm going to say Santa Margarita. I'm going to say Santa Margarita. That's a good guess because it was a Trinity League school, but it was not Santa Margarita. It was Bosco. 
Okay. Well, that was pretty good for Bosco because they didn't have all their top dogs there. And Servite actually finished second. So oh, wow. we're, just, okay. we're just clowning on them. And then they actually. <laughs> well, no, I'm just, I'm just saying that <laughs> in terms of watching them and evaluating them, there's not a lot of those 2024 guys, especially, uh, that were there a year ago that have now transferred, like I said, back over to Santa Margarita. It's, it's a very interesting thing, you know, the transfers back and forth. And, uh, you know, Servite is very interesting that guys transfer out of Servite as much as they do. We've seen a lot of guys it's go a feeder from Servite school. to modern day. It's kind of a feeder school for some of the other training league schools. But, you know, one time Servite had a stacked roster, and they put those guys into college. You think about DJ Shoemate, Matt Khalil, Chris Calippo. It's not like they don't get guys into college. Aquanemius St. Brown, who came before uh, uh, Amon Ross St. Brown. Uh, But, yeah, those guys have been kind of junior, senior years. They transfer over to the other Trinity League schools. Yeah, don't forget, yeah, like Amon Ross St. Brown, he was at Servite. Uh, Trent McDuffie, he was at Servite. Obviously with Tabasco, first-round pick for the Kansas City Chiefs. This past April, so, you know, a lot of guys ha- at least have one stop at, uh, at Servite. So I wonder, and then Emmett Mosley, who, who we watch at Santa Margarita, their big 2024, I believe, their big 2024 guy, he's also at Santa Margarita. So an- just another wave of guys going into Servite, coming out of Servite. I'm sure they'll have another run at some point with, you know, what they have with T-Mac and, and whatnot. So we'll see. We'll see what happens with them. But, yeah, they finished second, won some money. I believe it was $1,000. So congrats to Servite. And the, the Trinity League, once again, not surprised, kind of dominated that that tournament. And with that, we have our two kind of final points uh, that I know you wanted to talk about, some of these NCAA mandate changes, uh, one being the scholarship limit has been removed. There's no more divisions for the Pac-12, and then a little bit of some uh, some bill legislation, which I'm sure you can uh, you can highlight better than I can. Yeah, so I think you know two things that came up, which you know are going to have uh, some impact on the recruiting process, are this uh, California bill CASB 1401, which is legislation for. Uh, giving college athletes a 50% share of revenue. So, you know, this is another potential evolution of NIL, but even more than just straight NIL, uh, this is actually profit uh, sharing forcing. Yeah. It's forcing these colleges to give 50% of the revenue that they make, not 50% of the profit that they make, from athletics, but 50% of the revenue that they make for athletics going back to the athletes. And they would have a maximum of, I believe, $50,000 per year. And then the rest of that money that they would make from the revenue would go into some type of trust fund or something that they would have after graduation. And that graduation would be uh, within six years of enrollment. So you only have a six-year window before you graduate so you can get your money upon graduation. So a very interesting bill. Um, I don't think it would be very popular among colleges. Um, it didn't seem like it was very popular just in the thread uh, when it came up and fans were talking about it. And obviously there's some big issues with that bill. Uh, but I, I thought it was interesting that 
it was passed along. And I don't know if this came up in the LA Times or, or where it was actually first reported, but it was basically editorialized, and I'll quote here, uh, quote, this bill would be a life raft for underperforming programs like Cal Stanford and UCLA, a leg up for programs like San Diego State, San Jose State, and Fresno State, a throne, which I'm not really sure what that necessarily means, but a throne for USC, this obviously being painted that it's great for everybody, which whenever you're talking about a bill, <laughs> you know when it's painted as great for everybody, that that's not necessarily true. Uh, there's usually going to be someone uh, of that group of different tiered programs that is going to suffer from such a bill. And I could think of right off the bat that it's not going to be good for schools uh, that uh, are really more about the sort of Title IX uh, sports and the sports that are not the main sports, uh, where you're just not going to have those sports anymore. If the universities have to give 50% of their revenue, those sports just aren't going to exist. They're going to go bye-bye. So I don't know that Stanford and Cal and those schools that put a lot of emphasis on those sports are really going to want to uh, have such a bill. It seems a little odd. Um, and obviously, anytime the government is forcing something upon uh, the private sector, which obviously some of these schools are state schools, so they're not necessarily, necessarily private uh, sector, but uh, this money that's being raised through athletics, it, it really is more privatized in terms of how it's handled. And you have the government stepping in saying you have to do this and you have to have equality. The other thing that was really kind of odd, I think, at the, the, the set of this um, – and it kind of it raises red flags is that the name of the bill is the College Athlete Race and Gender Equity Equity Equity, Equity Act. Okay, Equity. if I can speak properly, it's English. College Athlete Race Gender Equity Act, which is to imply that it's something that makes. I, I I don't know why it's named that. Really, I don't know what that has to do with the actual uh, the the bill itself. Which is again, I sort of a red flag. And uh, what I've learned over the years is that anytime politicians start talking about equality and something being equal, it's not necessarily fair. I think a lot of people confuse those two words, fair and equal. And what's fair is not always equal, and what's equal is not always fair. And certainly with this, um, in terms of how they distribute that money. Uh, it may not be fair. So, yeah, there's a lot of stuff here with this particular bill that makes you kind of um, a little bit uh, suspicious of it and, and how uh, it would actually be um, organized and how it would be implemented. And at face value, it just doesn't seem like it would necessarily be a good thing for college football, uh, let alone USC. It is an interesting bill, interesting idea, but you're right. It's just another sort of giant upheaval of the sport when they're, when it's already facing two other giant upheavals in this moment with, you know, sort of the transfer portal and then obviously NIL. And obviously we've talked about how NIL sort of opened the door for all these sort of different things. And I, it looks like this is another thing it's sort of opened the door for, even though it's different. It's sort of, you know, the money in college football and athletes getting paid. It's sort of, opened the door for a, a, a sort of a bill like this to come out and maybe potentially get passed. I don't really have anything further to add on it in terms of, I think it is an interesting idea, but like you said, it could have sort of long lasting and sort of maybe program ending repercussions for some teams that, you know, that maybe don't want to deal with it in terms of, you know, giving 
50% of their revenue to football players or anything like that. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm yeah, just something. saying it's, it's, I'm just saying it's, that's probably uh, a repercussion that could happen. Yeah. And I misspoke. I said $50,000 oh. per year. Actually, the maximum is $25,000 per year. So the rest of the money would be put in to some type of fund that would be uh, accessible after graduation. Now, you know, that in itself kind of raises questions about universities gating players from graduating to be able to get that money back. Because if you don't graduate on time, that money goes back to the institution as far as I know. So that's incentive for these universities to, uh, to pull some shenanigans and say, Oh no, no, you've got more classes or, or, or not, you know, be completely transparent with everything that uh, a player has to take uh, in order to, to, to graduate. I don't like that. That makes that a little bit of a, a weird sort of situation and, and maybe I'm just being a bit cynical there, but yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, right now the colleges want to get you in and out and they want you to take the courses, get your degree and move on. Cause you're on scholarship. Uh, but here you're actually, uh, you know, it's an incentive for the colleges, the universities to say, well, you know, you haven't graduated. So yeah, that $200,000 or however much money that uh, you've earned over the, over the years here, uh, that's our money now. So, uh, Thanks. Here's your $25,000. We'll take the rest. Um, the other thing is it also implies, and I don't know where they're getting this and saying that they can pay the players $25,000 a year, but because the rest of the money is put towards higher education and uh, graduation, that it's still the, the, the schools and I guess the government still look at the players as amateurs. Which I don't know if that's how Uncle Sam would look at it. And, and again, these universities, above all else, want to stay away from uh, anyone screwing with their tax exemptions and making players employees and doing all that. That's just that from everything I've been told, that's a poison pill for college football. And now that might be the universities uh, exaggerating a bit because they don't want to share in profits and things of that nature. Uh, they don't want to have to pay players straight out. But I do think there's something to it when you start bringing in the government and taxes and the IRS and everything going on. Um, that definitely changes the game quite a bit. And I think ultimately these universities start looking at the profits that they're actually making in their margins and they really start to question, do we want to stay in this game? Do we want to stay in this racket? Do we just want to go to what the Ivy League schools have done? And, you know, we'll give no, we won't give scholarships. We won't do anything. If you can get an NIL, then fine, but we're not going to, um, pursue top players, uh, like we have. And it'll end up being more like college baseball is where maybe you get a top player here or there, but a lot of these guys are going to get more money from minor league system and that's where they go. And so the NFL has to step up and, uh, create some type of minor league, um, with some private sector people. And you start seeing, you know, the ranch Kukumunga, Titans instead of the USC Trojans. If this passes, I can guarantee you that we will be at some point witnessing the first like class action lawsuit of, of a collection of players against some school for, for what you projected maybe a possibility with schools sort of maybe trying to get that money back in, in terms of the graduation stuff. I, I, I cannot wait for that first class action lawsuit against X school or whatever. The one thing that I would interject that's maybe the one positive that 
came out of reading the bill and just like the superficial thing that I plucked out was that the complication of a collective bargaining agreement is sort of not an issue anymore because you're, you know, paying the players from revenue and basically the colleges themselves are going to be negotiating that and then it trickles down to the players. Whereas right now, because colleges are not involved in NIL directly, uh, there's still that question that I have of, you know, the NCAA, EA sports football game, uh, whether players all of a sudden start to unionize and then they want TV profits and they start dealing with the TV uh, broadcasters themselves directly, uh, merchandising, so on and so forth. Those things are still, you know, for all the college football players, like someone has to step up and be an entity to be able to negotiate for them with these type of things. And I know there's a couple of different companies that have already sort of popped up that are doing that sort of behind the scenes, but you have multiple companies. And so um, that's going to be interesting to see how that goes. Uh, this would make that a non-issue, be a moot point. Um, but again, I, I think there's all kinds of red flags and issues with this bill beyond that, that pretty much tank it. Um, so I, again, I, I, I just, I don't know. I, I can't see it passing, but then again, I just don't know uh, necessarily what's behind it from a lobbying standpoint. And, you know, um, I, I feel like it's almost entrapment to, to some extent. I almost feel like the government is sort of putting this out here like, yeah, no, 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 it's fine. You won't be, no, 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 it, they'll still be amateurs. Yeah, yeah, we won't come after you for, for taxes for this. No, it's fine. And then all of a sudden it's like the next few drops, it passes. And then the government's like, okay, so um, you're paying players now. So <laughs> where's their benefits and where's our money? Where's our piece of it? Because, you know, they want uh, taxes from not only the schools, but they'd love to get taxes from each of these players. I mean, that's going to happen. That's going to be an issue which these players are going to have to educate themselves on. The ones that are making enough money per year, they're going to have to start paying taxes. And I'm sure there are going to be a lot of guys that are just like, you know, not paying taxes. And we're going to hear about that. You know, if they're like, you know, four or five years into their NFL career, it's like, yeah, well, that's great. He started paying taxes when he was a pro, but yeah, yeah, he's got, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in taxes that he didn't pay when he was in college. Let's shift to something that did pass or that is tangible and that we can actually see because it's going to take effect this year. And that would be the two NCAA. Well, not one is not NCAA, but one being a Pac-12 uh, initiative that changes the Pac-12 from divisions to no divisions, and the Pac-12 championship will be played for the team with the two highest win percentages. Uh, so no more North and South. You don't got to worry about winning the South. If you're USC, it's just win. You can you could maybe take a loss to Utah. That's usually penciled in as sort of the make or break for the division for the division s- schedule slate as maybe the determining factor for who's going to take control of the South. But now it's just, you know, you can get by with a loss to Utah or anything like that. Just got to be the, the high, one of the highest two win percentages in the conference to make the championship. And then the other being the NCAA change that the scholarship limit, which is usually at 25, you know, there's no cap on that. You can sign sort of over, over 25. And, you know, it's sort of a rule change that fits the new, Look of college football recruiting, especially in the secondary market with the transfer portal and, you know, guys leaving and guys coming in and just a whole new market to tap with, uh, with, with, uh, teams signing players for their classes. But you can like, just take a look at USC's class, which is, I believe it's like at, at 28 or something, 27 or something like that. But 
Gerard, reactions to these new changes? Um, not much reaction to the divisional change. Um, certainly it's just going to depend on your schedule, you know. Uh, it'll be more wide open and it won't be so much the schools, uh, geographically playing against each other. I mean, it could be Oregon playing USC yearly now instead of, you know, every two years or what have you. Um, so we'll see how that shakes out. Uh, obviously, if you're going to have some tiebreakers and things like that, there could be more controversy at the end of the year as opposed to the clean cut sort of, you know, you win your division, you go on. Um, I think the 25 rule is interesting. Obviously, we heard earlier in the year that the NCAA was going to put forth this, you know, you can have an additional seven players because of the transfer rule. If you If you lose a certain amount of transfers, you can replace those with seven more transfers. I think that just kind of went out the window because so many schools had so many different transfers. And this is supposed to be a reaction to COVID and the extra year and everything that sort of happened from that. And so you have schools that are trying to basically rebuild their rosters because of coaching changes. And so this helps USC. It gives them a little more breathing room in terms of this cycle um, and the next cycle and being able to uh, bring in more players. And, and obviously this makes it, that you're maybe going to see more players sort of pushed out of programs and schools are going to try to, you know, become as efficient as possible and getting as many good players in from the transfer portal as they can. It's over the next two years. So again, this is in response to uh, the COVID shutdown and then those players getting another year of eligibility, um, even though they played that year. Uh, so We'll see, but I mean, I think it definitely is an advantage and it helps USC just because of where they are in terms of um, trying to revamp the roster. Uh, it would be really huge if, you know, this was for a school that got sanctioned, you know, um, and that, that, that would be a big deal and sort of, you know, for like an ASU that's still going through the investigation period, unfortunately, mm-hmm. they sort of got that black cloud over them, but you know, you fire, um, the head coach or Herm Edwards and you sort of bring a new uh, system in and you bring in your new coaches and whatever, not having a 25 limit would really help, you know, get those numbers back up quickly. I mean, USC wishes that they didn't have the 25 limit back in the day uh, when Sarkeesian was taken over and then you had uh, Clay Helton, you know, they would be able to get a lot better players just uh, from a recruiting standpoint, each of those cycles. And that was back before you even had the transfer portal. So that would have, that, that process of getting the scholar, the, the roster back um, with scholarships and scholarship level players would have been much quicker than it was. Uh, so, you know, any school that's going to be in that position is going to benefit greatly from this. Uh, USC benefits to some extent from it. Um, I don't think it's going to be huge, huge, but it is a, a, a nice little sort of taking the ceiling off of uh, how many players you can take over uh, the next two cycles. And with that, Gerard, we have sort of reached the end of the show. Now I'm going to give you a choice. We only have one listener question. It is sort of a longer one, and that would maybe take you down a Gerard soliloquy of recruiting throwbacks, I would assume. Uh, maybe talking about an older recruitment. It's kind of a two-part question. Do you want to save it for next time? Do you want to end the show right now? Or do you want to do uh, play a little game of the, the question? I got a question for you. I think we should save the question because it's not necessarily a timely question. 
And it is okay. a question that sort of gets involved into, you know, our job and behind the scenes. And I'm sure there's like examples and things you go into and you talk about the nuances. And so I would say, yeah, save that question because we had a lot of stuff to cover this week. Um, we can play your little game of talk about my tattoo if you want. <laughs> okay. 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 Uh, yeah, so we're going to save that question. And again, we didn't have a lot of questions. Did you guys know that Chris got a tattoo? Did you know that he got a tattoo? Guys, he got a tattoo. There we go. If you didn't know, now you know. Uh, we didn't get a lot of listener questions this week. And if you want to send us a question, you can always hit us up at, uh, USC football. Sorry. It's USC football at I'm actually embarrassed right now. I'm kind of blanking on it. It's a podcast. It's podcast. I always get it confused. It's podcast at uscfootball.com. Uh, just make sure you tag us in the thread or the thread, the, the header, you know, being composite, two-star recruits, Chris and Gerard, those Latino guys. Just let us know that the question is for us. And again, that's podcast at uscfootball.com. Uh, send us an email there with your question and we'll get to it. We haven't done the question in a while, and this one was actually a user question from, I believe, two weeks ago or last week that I just didn't get a chance to do. I loved it so much, and I'm sorry if I, I don't have who wrote it down or who, who submitted it. I think it was a Twitter question, so I apologize if you're listening, you're hearing this question. I just don't remember uh, your username. But, Gerard, what is your perfect, perfect sandwich? sandwich? My perfect sandwich? I, uh, I mean – I like peanut butter and jelly. Um, I don't know if I would say that's perfect, but I tell you what, man, dude, if you're in the mood for peanut butter and jelly and I don't eat peanut butter and jelly very often, but man, a tall glass of milk, ice cold with peanut butter and jelly. I've never done like, that. I've never done that. I'm too scared. It really to hits that. Why? Why? Why is that? I don't know. I just don't feel like, I just don't think there's like ever a sandwich that I would drink milk with. Do you know, it's like milk isn't a sandwich drink for me, if that makes sense. Well, that makes peanut sense. butter and jelly is, is kind of dessert-ish. I mean, it, I don't know. I guess when you're older and you're trying to watch your carbs and all that good stuff, you you just don't eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches very often. And so it's a, it's a treat. You know, for me, that's more of a treat. So like cookies and milk, I'll have, yeah, like a, a, a glass of milk with a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I like crunchy peanut butter but i usually oh, have i'm not a, i'm not a, i'm not a crunchy guy gerard unfortunately there's usually smooth in the house so it's like you take what you can get um and then some smuckers or something just strawberry jam but i mean yeah perfect sandwich like i i really like the firehouse um their regular hoagie i can't remember what the heck a name the name of it is it's just their regular hot sub that they have no mustard is really good it's really good, but yeah, I don't, I don't know, man. I, I, I don't eat a lot of sandwiches like anymore. That's like a, that's like a, a an early twenties thing, and then I think by the time you're thirty, you're probably not eating a lot of sandwiches. You're, you're gatekeeping sandwiches for the early twenty crowd. Come on, Gerard. <laughs> and I just talked about you know, fire subs, <laughs> and that is a sandwich. So I mean, I, I guess I'm, 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 I'm being a, a little a bit critical. A sub is a sandwich, yeah. Sub you, 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 you can't give know, early man. 20s I, I mean, the sandwiches. You can't do that to me. As someone in their early 30s, you like, can't, take, can, can't take sandwiches from me. The question kind of gives me the implication of like a sandwich you would make. Like what you, yes. you, it's a perfect sandwich, right? So it's the sandwich 
that you would make. Another great sandwich is my, my mom used to just make chick, like white breast chicken with mayo and some salt and pepper. And, and those would rock. Like, you know, it, like, I feel like a sandwich is you go in the pool for the day and you've been swimming or you've been doing something. It's like a sandwich can be amazing just cause you're that hungry, you know, but like, if you're not that hungry, a sandwich is like, okay, whatever. It's a sandwich. So it just depends, you know, kind of on the context of how hungry you are. Again, like if you haven't had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in a long time and it's like a, just a thing, like, you know, you feel like your blood sugar's low and you had a tough workout that night and boom. I mean, that's like, that's great, dude. That's like eating a piece of cake for me. Interesting. I'm a big peanut butter and jelly guy. What about are you? you? Yeah. I mean, stage. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a big peanut butter and jelly guy. Are you a double put the peanut butter on both sides of the bread? No. So that prevents the leaking. Bread. That prevents the leaking if you're taking it somewhere. It's a little pro tip. Yeah, it's, no, I'm never I'm never taking a sandwich anywhere usually. No, I don't I don't take food places. I, if I'm out, I go and find a place to eat. <laughs> so I'm not a I'm not a bag lunch guy. Uh, again, probably, you know, I mean, I haven't bagged a lunch in, in probably Jeez, since I was like since a, fifth grade. Yeah, like exactly. Yeah. Well, if we're talking about my perfect sandwich, I think it's just a nice BLT. I'm a big BLT guy. You know, crisp lettuce, crispy bacon, some nice juicy tomatoes, and just a perfect amount of mayonnaise on a some toasted bread. And that's that's kind of it for me. I'm not a big sandwich. Toasted bread. Yeah. Toast that baby. See, the toasted bread kind of like it, it works sometimes. It doesn't work. Like when I toast bread, I always kind of go, I wish I wouldn't have toasted this because it's like <laughs> hurts the roof of my mouth, you know, like or something. There's just something about it that you gotta I, get I don't your mouth. Like, but you, you gotta know, get the top of your mouth checked out, my man. I don't know what you're talking about. I gotta eat more Captain Crunch. But I mean, the I think like if you get that artisan type of bread, like are you going sourdough? Or are you going regular white bread? You know, there's a lot of bread, you know, that can that can change the game with a sandwich. Yeah, Texas toast. I love a good sourdough for my BLT. You know, plain white bread just doesn't does do it for me. I need a little bit of excitement when it comes to that. You know, Wonder Bread, get out of here. I'm not a potato bread guy. All these things. I like potato bread. I just ate it so like much as a, as, a, as a kid. It's just I'm just over it. One thing that I do that I know my family thinks is weird is that when you're on the subject of BLTs, sometimes I'll have a BLT minus the lettuce and I'll put egg in it, right? So I like an actual sunny side up egg, a dipping egg, and get the oozing going. So you're talking about leakage. I just say, you know what? I'm all in and I'm going to cut it, and it's going to leak, and I'm going to enjoy it because I got the bread left over because you always have the bread left over at those corners, and I sop up that egg with the bread. Yeah, I I discovered, like, having, like, a fried egg on your burger, like a bacon burger. I discovered that. Every time I have the opportunity, I do it because you're right. The leak gets everywhere, but you just got to embrace it. You know, you got to commit. And it's going to get all over you, but whatever, it's going to taste delicious. And you're right. You just sop that up with that bread. That's more so for burgers. I don't really do that for sandwiches. I don't want to get into the debate. I guess a burger is a sandwich, but, yeah, I'm with you on the eggs. I'm not with you on the crunchy peanut butter, but I'm with you on the eggs. 
there you go. So I don't know if we're ended at that, but that's <laughs> no, that, that, that's, I don't that's, know that, that's where it's going to end. This is like the earliest we've ended since like the first episode. I don't know what to do with myself. Ah, so, so I told you, I called you out on Twitter about that. You were projecting and see, we got it done <laughs> even earlier and you're trying to drag it out now. See, I'm not dragging it out. I'm just not used just to all this extra time. I don't know what I'm going to do with all this extra like, time. Hey man, you don't, yeah, you know, six years, no problem, man. You don't need to take these math classes until the very end. Oh yeah. Oh, sorry. Too bad. Six years. <laughs> yep. You don't get your money. You're just trying to drag it out. We know what you're about, Chris. We know what you're trying to do. All right. Before I get, uh, more, uh, shade thrown my way, I'm going to end it because I have the ability to end this podcast. So we're going to end it right here. Busy week. By the time we meet again next Wednesday, I'm sure there will be at least one new commitment. We'll see. Gerard, do you have anything to go before we uh, close out this pod? No, thank you for the Peristyle subscribers. As always, you guys, you can always reach out to us on the Peristyle. Any questions about the podcast, any questions about the fluidness of the recruiting process that is going on right now, we'll be there to answer your questions. And, you know, we're always able to chime in with the discussion. And, um, yeah, it was a, a concise podcast, which – Again, we had a lot of different stuff to talk about, and we probably could have got even deeper into uh, the legislation talk with some of these bills and the NCAA news. Um, but I think that's going to evolve over the next couple of weeks. Uh, so uh, we'll probably bring these topics up again and talk a little bit about how they're impacting the recruiting process in USC specifically. I'm Chris. That's Gerard. This is the Composite Two Star Recruits for USCFootball.com. We'll catch you next time.